Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. Shalom and welcome to our pre-Purim special. Just a few hours here before Purim. And it's one of the happiest and wildest holidays on the Jewish calendar. We have a great Purim show for you. We're going to have uh, Rav Mike Foyer and myself talking about uh, the Torah portion of Tzav, uh, which is the vestments uh, of the tabernacle. Those are a lot of big words, vestments of the tabernacles, and the clothes of the priests, uh, what they mean, and, of course, the Megillat Esther, uh, which is the Esther's, Esther Megillah, Esther Scroll, one of the most incredible texts in the Jewish world, uh, and mysterious, awesome, deep, uh, political, uh, uh, the whole the whole nine yards. It's it's the stuff. It's the best stuff of of drama there is because Judaism we know drama. And right afterwards, uh, myself in debate with the great Rabbi Yehuda Hakohen, uh, talking about what is Zionism on a, on a what is the vision of Zionism and what are we going to do with the Palestinians and the Palestinian question, etc. Lots of fun is coming up, but that's a that's a long that's like a two hour discussion. It's it's intellectual. It's interesting. It's it's um, it's between two people who respect one another. So that's myself. So so we got a lot of good rabbis. But before we uh, start with all those serious and heavy things, we got to remember that Purim is a young people's holiday, a young a ch- kids children, and therefore we we've got back on the show by popular demand the one and only starlet of Purim, none other than Leah Fleischer. Leah Leah Batzion Fleischer. Shalom and welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> nice to have you on the show with us, and um, and Purim is it's it's really for you. Although Labatzion Purim this year is a little bit different because it's been coveted and the whole thing. It's a little bit tiring to talk about it, but yes, <laughs> once again. So tell me a little bit about your first thing. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And tell me a little bit about uh, your uh, Purim, uh, your pre-Purim uh, excitements. Well, um, I'm really excited just because it might be a year where we could relax a little bit because Purim for us is usually this day where you're going nuts. You're going from this place. You have to do the suda. You have to do this. Now it's also Purim Mishulash, which means it's spread out for three days, um, which means it's going to be a little more relaxed, a little more chill, which is good that also leaves the, the holiday to continue longer and the more holiday, the better. <laughs> and more drinking for you, right? You're going to be drinking your face off, is that right? Candy. Oh. <laughs> okay. So, not drinking. No. Okay, but your dad will drink? Your Bobby will drink? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, that's good news. Uh, what else? Uh, so, candies, costumes, um, the Megillah. Do you like hearing the Megillah, or is it long and annoying? Well, you have to like learn sort of where you're supposed to have anticipation and where you're just supposed to sit there with uh, kavod, with uh, admirance towards the Megillah. And admirance, um, that's a new word, but I like it a lot. <laughs> admirance is good. I have admirance towards you. Yes. Okay. Um. So um. Uh. Like I, I very much like the beginning. Yeah. I also like um, the middle and the end. <laughs> yes. Um, no, but I enjoy the parts where you have what to think about, where you have to like, where the Megillah is full of little hidden secrets, where you have to like look at it and understand, and it's um, it's very special to like go deeper because there's so many explanations on so much little little things. 
And it's also always a, a push for our days today and like understanding how even something that happened thousands of years ago is still connected to us today. Right. Okay. And, and that Hashem is found even though when he's not seen, when he's not found. That reminds me of the costume that you had today, which was a very interesting costume. <laughs> Your costume was not Esther, but Esther Astir. Which is a pasuk in Dvarim, I, I think, um, which the Chazal say and the big rabbis say. The sages. Um, that, that, that we have admirers for. <laughs> yeah. That it's um, a place in the Torah. The Megillah did not go into the Torah. And, um, what does that mean? Uh, there's a whole discussion about uh, like how that the Megillah is Nevu'ah, but yet it's not in the Torah. It's a long thing. No, it is in the Tanakh. No, I'm saying the Torah itself. There's a whole. There's a weird discussion about like, is it the same level of Nevu'ah? But because it was Nevu'ah through Maasim, through right, Ruach um, Hakodesh, it was Ruach Hakodesh. It was Ruach Hakodesh. It was not like Hashem speaking to someone. Right. So because of that, it didn't go into the Torah itself. Um, so in Dvarim, there is a little sign that reminds us that the Megillah is in the Tanakh, and that says "Aster Astir Panai Bayomahu." Um, where this is in the Book of Dvarim in Deuteronomy, where, uh, which means which means that Hashem will will not show His face, will not show His face to His people, um, will also like leave them a little bit, will it will be hide, and it's not. Which does not symbol good. That symbols bad and sad days. Um, but the reason that is very uh, related to Megillah Tester is because there's a lot of little hidden secrets, a lot of little things. Um, Esther, she hides her identity. Her real name is Hadassah. Um, so I had a costume today because. And, and God's name is hidden. Yeah, and Hashem also just hides his face. He lets the Jews do wrong things without pushing towards them to stop. Um, and they don't see him. They maybe forget him. They assimilate. They drink wine at the king's party. It's bad. It goes bad. Um, so I got dressed to stare, and I had this little necklace, and I wrote a stare on it. But when you flipped it over, there was a, a Magen David um, a, a symbol of David, of the Jewish people. And I also had this uh, emoji shush sign, and I put it in front of my face. So it was just a stare steer. That, 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 that Hashem is hidden, or things are hidden. But, but the whole point of, the, of Megillat Esther is that God is hidden, but through his hiddenness, if you search for him, he is revealed. Yes. You could find him in the hiddenness. Uh, and, and, uh, and our rabbis tell us that the worst kind is that he's so hidden that you don't even know he's hidden. You're so, you're so, you know, when you're playing hide and seek, somebody's hiding, at least you're looking for them. But if you don't even know to look for them, that's really, really hidden. And that's what happened also in the time of Persia. And that, that's certainly what happened during the time of the Holocaust. And yet Hashem appeared through that and brought us back to uh, the land of Israel uh, through this, uh, the horrible process of uh, the two world wars and uh, the great time that we're living in, Labatsun, the great time yes. that we're living in. Okay, so so you're excited for Purim now? You but but that was your that was your uh, pre Purim costume because right, you actually have a party. Purim costume. Yeah, my actual Purim costume is less deep. It's a little more exciting and fun. I'm going to be this cotton candy costume that I made. 
You are cotton candy. Cotton candy all the way. Okay. You took a you took one of my shirts. I totally destroyed shirts, it. Destroyed it. You covered it with with white pinkish fluff. Uh, no, I sprayed it fluff. Oh, it was white fluff, and then you sprayed it pink. Yeah. And then you also made a headband with, with a fluffy cloud. And then a stick in it. So it, that's how they have it in Israel with these uh these long like hot dog sticks. Right. No, that's the way it is around the world. Yes, from Timbuktu to <laughs> Ethiopia. <laughs> From the Indus River uh, to to Castile, uh, all over the world, they all use a stick to get the con candy with I the same thing. I'm pretty sure they have different sticks. No, that's the stick that they use around the world, the same one. That what, what you roll it in like that yes. inside the con candy. Now, how do you say con candy in Hebrew? Um, there's a few different ways. You could say tzemel gefen matok, which means uh, cotton, but sweet cotton. Sweet cotton. Or salot uh, safta, which means uh, grandma hairs. <laughs> Grandma hairs. That's what we eat around here. It's usually not pink in Israel. Yeah, that's right. Because the Jewish people want to connect to the sages and to the and to because of the and um, eat Safta's hair. Right, and, and we have great. What was the word you used before? <laughs> what is it? What was the word? Respectness. No. <laughs> All right, Leah. Uh, we have a we have a great show uh, for the rest of the show today, and you're starting it off for us real good and getting us into the poor mood. Uh, let's do a little bit more pouring me and you for just another second, you and I. Uh, first thing I want to talk about the uh, various and sundry uh, folks that are today sponsors of the Yishai Fleischer Israel podcast. Uh, of course, first there's the people who help make it happen, which is Moshe Herman, Tabitha, Ben Bresky, and Yochevet. These are producers. Woo! And my buddy Lou Weiss helps me on the live stream, okay? So, so the show uh, has a lot of like volunteers and helpers that makes a big difference in producers. And we also have folks that are sponsoring the show today. First thing, uh, do you ever notice that when my beard looks good and shiny and smells like a cedar tree? Okay, when it does, it's because there's this company made called Aleph Mail. Uh, and Aleph Mail, they make great beard balm for cool. non-toxic... Uh, Hebrew masculinity from Judea. Okay, <laughs> if you go to if you go to alephmail dot com and you put in Yishai ten, you get ten percent off. Nice. That's right. That's nice. <laughs> All right. And so that's Aleph Mail. That's beard bomb for and, and you'd be the bomb if you wear beard beard bomb. <laughs> um, and if you're ready, uh, uh, an Aleph Mail of the non toxic Hebrew masculinity variety, you would love to wear some tchelet. Trelet all the way. Right, your brothers wear? Trelet. Like, it's like, um, it's sort of, it's like, you know how when you're three years old, a boy, uh, he gets his kippah, his tzitzit. For us, at a certain age, it's not an exact age. It's like a special thing to get trelet. We really hard, we push for trelet. We also went through a process of how trelet is made, which stinks. It, right. Like, the and smell is horrible. Yeah, but we went to the sea, <laughs> if you remember, and we actually dug, we, we, we searched for the chilazon snail. But we weren't allowed to take them because they're like... Protected get it, or something. They're protected. They're almost extinct in Israel, weirdly. Mm, I don't think they're extinct. They're just rare. I, but anyway, they're found more like in Croatia and stuff. So that's trelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T. Right now they have uh, still uh, some kind of hagrala. How do you say hagrala in English? A uh, lot. A lot. It's called Purim, Abba. Uh, uh, yeah, Purim, please, Abba. <laughs> Let's okay. remember this part, Abba. So trelet.com. Check it out, of course. Type in Yishai in the coupon code. Get 5% off. Um, lottery, Abba. Lottery. Lottery. Okay. No, no. no it's, it's a raffle. It's a oh. raffle. <laughs> uh, Jerusalem Salves. JerusalemSalves.com. They make your skin glow. Nice. That's right. There's a lot of products. 
Now this one's a little bit more ladylike. Okay, yes. Jerusalem salves. My friend Rachel Gluck and Simcha Gluck, they make these salves. They're all natural. They make them? Yeah. Yep. Really? Oh yeah. They're very businessy. They they have great they have great uh, I never knew. Yeah, they have a lot they're very entrepreneurial. Do you know that word entrepreneurial? Definitely not. It it, it means <laughs> it means people who do their own businesses. That's and they, really they, cool. Yeah, it's a great it's a great word. Entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. Our and don't ask Don't ask don't ask me to spell it. I tell you <laughs> that. you want to spell it, ask go to your mom. mother. Yeah, exactly. So that's Jerusalem Salves, Jerusalem Type in coupon code Yeshai. Yeah. And get ten percent off. Um Jewishpress.com. Jewish Press. JewishPress.com. They they feature the Yishai Fleischer Israel podcast every single week, Labatu. Really? Every single week, the Yishai Fleischer Israel podcast is their like featured podcast, and they include other ones, but ours is the featured one, so that's pretty cool. And Jerusalem, J- Jewish Press, you know what else they do? They put out a great email of um, of daily news articles that are the best ones of the day. Oh. And, and it's called Jewish Express. I came up with that name for them. That's really cool. Yeah, Jewish Press and Jewish <laughs> Express. And it's a great email. It's one of the best emails of Jewish news, Israel news uh, out there. So that's jewishpress.com. And you'll see uh, the Yishai Fleischer show there, the podcast. And we, I'm not done yet, Leah. I'm not done yet. <laughs> Keeps going. That's right, because we also have Prohibition Pickle, which you reminded me about. I love Prohibition Pickle. It is. It has all the flavors. It's much variety. Uh, they're sweet. They're sour. I like the half-half, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, what about what juicy. happened last week? There was something very special last week. Last week. We had something that we liked at the table from Prohibition Pickle. Some settler salami. Oh, that's man. Right. That so, was so, so that's good. Right. With some, that some was high quality. Pickle. That's right. That's right. It was awesome. Okay. Uh, so great, like... Uh, um, like designs, wow! Like every time I see one of the designs for a product, I just burst out laughing. It's so cool, it's so awesome. That's my man Chaim. He does both the food and the business and the graphics. He's really cool like that. That's Chaim. It's really amazing. So if you want to buy uh, for your own Shabbos here in the land of Israel, if you want to trick out your kiddush, and if you want to help somebody else by sending them some loving uh, through Prohibition Pickle, uh, just just check it out on Instagram and on Facebook. And and make Shabbos make Shabbos great again. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just came up with that. Do you think that's good? Yeah, it's pretty make good. Make Shabbat great again. Oh, make Shabbat great again. Prohibition okay. pickle will uh, bring up your kiddish game by a good amount of percentage. Right. Another fifty percent. That's right. And you like a little chaim <laughs> in kiddish, right? With a little, uh, little Coca Cola. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we also have our 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 uh, uh, I would say even more than good friends. Which is the Hebron Fund, the Jewish yes. community of Hebron. You yourself, Lebatzion, have a lot of deep connection to Hebron and the Maratha Machpelah. Tell me a little bit about that, the tomb of the fathers and mothers. Okay. Um, so, uh, my father and mother, you and mom, uh, got married in Maratha Machpelah in Hebron. True. Uh, what else? I had my bat mitzvah there. That's the one. I gave a tour. That's right. Uh, I have a lot of connection because I love working there. I love helping. It is an amazing feeling. And it doesn't even feel like work. It feels like something your body's meant to do, something that your life wants to achieve. So if people want to protect, defend, and beautify nice. uh, the Marat HaMachpelah and strengthen the Jewish community around there, the heroic Jewish community, hebronfund.org. Uh, and people can be part of the story, part of the beautiful story of the, of the forefathers and mothers. Now, Labatzion, oh, now three more. Can you believe wow, this? Wow, this that's is a, never right. ending. <laughs> that's right, and I'm looking for even more. I even have some more. We have, first thing, we have Blessed by Israel. Blessed by Israel, you can get great products from the land of Israel to your home, blessedbyisrael.com. 
Uh, and if you get it, if you if you go to this website, what are you asking me? I can't understand. Well, so what do talking, they What do they sell there? What What do they have? They have all kinds of cool stuff and a few weird things as well. Frankly, okay. <laughs> There's jewelry, there's olive oil, there's, oh. there's stuff from the land of Israel, and they ship all over the world. They're Wide great, variety. They're great shippers. They have some weird stuff, which is like some locust, Oy. locust food, <laughs> Lo- locust energy bars. Oh, I'm not quite sure about that yet. It don't, just you should get it like maybe on Pesach once. I don't know. Yeah, don't mind the locust. <laughs> I don't know. I cannot. I cannot speak about that. But that's blessed by Israel. dot com. B u i and if you type in Yishai, you get twelve percent off. Bang. A little higher than everything else. Yeah, two more, two more. We have also, this is a different kind of advertiser that I have. This is my man, Mark Rice. He has a company called Energy CX, energycx.com. What they do is that they help businesses meet their energy needs and sustainability goals in the United States in all 50 states for synagogue, schools, businesses, retail, industrial. If you flip on a light switch, they can help you with a new form of kosher energy, Okay. Great so, name, first of all. Yeah, Kosher Energy is really good. EnergyCX.com. And this is very different because usually I advertise Eretz Israel stuff only. But I felt good about this because it's really a good cause yeah. and to keep the world, you know, um, make it a better place for me, for you, for the entire human race. <laughs> it's a song. Anyway, oh, don't, it don't is. Worry, yeah, don't worry about it, Leah. It's, you're, 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 uh, <laughs> you're too young for that, I guess. Uh, so that's the good folks at EnergyCX. And then we have one more, Leah Batsun. Do you know what we have also? Uh, we have, you know, Bela. Bela. Tell me a little bit about Bela's awesome place, Leah. Uh, Bela, our friend from Efrat, has an awesome salon in the Kfar Tzion. Uh, not Kfar Tzion. Not Kfar The Gush Tzion um, so mall. Gush. Um, and they have facial things. They have hairstyles. I personally got my bat mitzvah manicure, pedicure, the whole shebang there. That's right. Um, it's very nice, and they treat each person with high quality, and uh, it's also a fun, happy place, and they they really know what they're doing there. Okay, if I'm out, you went there yourself. It's called Silk Salon. I've been there more than once. <laughs> it's Silk Salon and Day Spa, silksalon.co.il, uh, and if you've got a, a beautiful daughter, granddaughter, friend in the land of Israel, you want to send them to a great uh, Pinuk. We have a word in Hebrew called pinuk. Do you know how to t- translate the word pinuk, Leah? Uh, pinuk to, um, how would I describe this to, like, <laughs> uh, I can't word. find a word in English right. for it. I it's don't think a, there is a word like it's that. It's to, to give extra love to, to like, Here's the word. It's care? called to pamper. To pamper. Pamper, to, yes. That's right, pamper. Yes. That's right. So, okay, that's exactly the word. That's right. So you get pampering at silksalon.co.il. <laughs> pamper yourself. Pamper another. Uh, I don't know if they have manicures for or for no they, they, they have, have manicures yeah, but pedicures I mean, right, but I don't know if they have manicures like, <laughs> can you, uh, you, you um, maybe they probably do they probably do well though I'm sure they're gonna let me know uh, <laughs> and you can send an electronic gift certificate to anybody in Israel come to Kishon here in the heart of Judea it's awesome so that is Leabatzion an amazing amount of folks that are part of the uh, Israel podcast the Shai Fleischer Israel podcast and and it's a great privilege. And we have really two more sponsors. You know the greatest? Three more sponsors. We have the Land of Israel Network. Yeah. Okay. That's Ari and Jeremy. They started it. You know Ari and Jeremy with the farm. Totally. The Ari, Ari Goat Farm, one of the most great beautiful places. Awesome great pool. pool. That's right. <laughs> and great spirituality. So that's Ari and Jeremy. And then we have two more sponsors. The greatest sponsors of them all are our friends and listeners. Okay. They make it all worth everything because they're out there 
and they are connected to the story of Israel, and they give us the schut, the merit of connecting them. Am I right, Light? Do you know what a feeling it is to get an email from a person? I don't like to say listener. I like to say friend, uh, uh, some, somebody who's part of the story. Do you know what a feeling that is, Leah? Uh, I don't. But you, well, you got, remember when you wrote that article, you got all those likes and all those, how did that feel? <laughs> it felt amazing. It felt like I had, like, a purpose in the world to show somebody something, to inspire somebody. Yefemot, exactly. So so when we get the chance to inspire people to be connected to Israel and the story of Israel and the God of Israel, it's <clears throat> awesome. And then we have one more sponsor. Can you guess who that is? Hashem. That's right. Rebono Shalom, the, the, the creator of the world. The founder of it all, number one, numero uno, okay? <laughs> the, the big the big one. You know? Hashem, the big he, boss. That's what the big boss. He makes it all happen for us uh, and gives us the big schut of living in this time, even with corona. Am I right, Labatsion? Absolutely. Every little, like, happy thing is amazing. Like, I lately uh, took up milkshake-ifying. I don't know. Um, you, you started becoming <clears throat> made like fruit shakes I make healthy smoothies. fruit shakes in the mornings sometimes I go a little more to the less healthy side like Oreo drinks um, and it's really fun you become a smoothie master so if anybody's got a recipe for Labazion to make <laughs> smoothies Labazion is the smoothie maker of this house in fact uh, also Ari Abramowitz uh, uh, recommended it I bought a ninja uh, uh, twirly whirly we're gonna uh, start on Pesach that's right we're gonna start it right after Pesach so if you have great recipes for Lea uh, just do hashtag Labatzion or, or, or a smoothie recipe, whatever it is. In any case, we really love to hear from you so much. Lea, we've got a great show lined up. Rav Mike Foyer talking about Parsha Tzav and the Megillah. Okay, hopefully with a good atmosphere. And my long debate, long form debate. I heard some of it. It sounds very interesting. Yeah, it was, it was good stuff. It was deep stuff. And it was definitely something inspiring. So, Labatzion, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And and a happy, happy Purim. I hope that, 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 that really, like, for your sake and for our sake, you start going back to school soon. Bezrat <laughs> Hashem. Right, because you've been, you've been in, you've become pretty good Zoomer, huh? Uh, you, you don't want to be a Zoomer anymore. <laughs> yes. It's called a Zoombie, Abba. A Zoombie, that's right. You become a total Zoombie. <laughs> All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. Let's get to it with Rav Mike Foyer. Stay tuned, stay strong, and stay connected. Chag Sameach! Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Ishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from Judea to the world. You're a part of it wherever you are. And shalom and welcome to all of our live viewing audience on Facebook, on YouTube, on Periscope, and later on on podcast at the Land of Israel Network and on YishaiFleischer.com. Rav Mike Foyer, a historian, a spiritual mentor and guide, and uh, and great, awesome guy all around, joins us. Shalom, Rav Mike, an educator. An oh, educator. Yeah. Well, That's an right. Like that, I feel like we should just end the show on a high note. <laughs> speaking of speaking of ending on a high note, speaking of speaking, spending, blah, blah, it's it's our Purim show, and therefore we're we're a little bit uh, funky, we're a little bit different. I was it trying to not get because of any chemical assistance. It is a fast day after all. That's right. It's a fast day, uh, but but there are many ways to to uh, to access those endorphins. And one of I those tried ways. I explain this to my class yesterday. That Purim is about madness, not drunkenness. If mm. you need. If you need a little bit of, of alcohol to get into the madness space, okay, you know, but but um, it's not what it's essentially about. Okay, well, 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 let's 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 go with that then. Like, what? Why do we need a madness day? Let's let's just say that in many religious traditions, uh, they always had you know a saturnalia and and days of like you know where the bacchanalia where, and the bacchanalia, right? 
right where where you take some 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 guy off the street and and you make him into the king and and all kinds of and then and then and usually you burn him in effigy and... right exactly at the end you like burn him and stuff or or impale him and 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 bad things happen really bad things happen and certainly 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 licentiousness uh so so like what do we have a, a like a, an upside down day where 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 there's a, a, you know a gross um what's the word i'm looking for when you flaunt the hedonism flout yeah flout flaunt the flout the law and 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 okay. succumb to hedonism is that the we'll, is that the thing that we on the show i don't want to flout but uh but is that is that what's happening here is is that what Purim is about well, I think it's important to to own the fact that this is indeed the season. I mean, it is spring, right? The life is starting to awaken after the winter, and it's not a coincidence that sort of carnival, bacchanalia type celebrations tend to happen May Day or you know in the spring. The difference is that the Torah, you know, the Torah never just kind of like honestly, I shouldn't say never. The Torah rarely cuts completely across the grain of human experience. Right, meaning so it's not like oh, see the Jews have their thing too. It shows they're not different than anyone else. No, we're we're human, right? Jews are just like everyone else, only more so. The difference is that the Torah takes this energy and it makes it a source of geula, of redemption, mm-hmm. and that's where the madness is so important, right? You know, the the command, and when I say madness, I want to be specific. Uh, um, the command is to reach that point of adeloyada, to the point of not knowing. Why? So inebriation, unfortunately for some people, leads to that state. But not knowing doesn't mean like forgetting and, and ignorant, etc. It means letting go of the need to know and opening yourself to the vastness of a world which actually can't be known. Rather than shrinking the world to something you can understand and then getting drunk to forget about it, it's holding what it means to stare into the infinite. And it's very important because Purim, of course, is the gateway to Pesach. In that sense, is that you have to blow the doors wide open in order that a real redemption can come through. The other way to say this is that I always feel very sad when people start to tell me what it's going to be like in the days of the Messiah. Mm. You know why? Why? Because why would I want a redemption that is small enough that it already fits the world in which we live? Think big, people. Right? The, the geula that we're waiting for is so big that we can't even imagine it. It's imuna, though, that even without imagining it, we'll be able to grasp it, attach ourselves to it. That will please God merit to see it. So you're saying so you're saying don't contain it. Don't contain it by saying this is what it's going to be like. Keep 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 the options open. Keep the keep the imagination just totally free of uh, of limitations. Break the, you got to break the bonds, and sometimes that uh-huh. and that's what and that's what you're saying. Forms about right. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I just I mean, want you to know. I just want you to know that uh, that Benji Zion and and another person said. And Oliveira said that I think Rav Mike should be a little louder. Instead, I have lowered myself and I have Don't reduced my yourself. volume. Yes, no, I have. You want me to I've raise re- the gain on my mic? No, I, I raised the gain on my. I lowered the gain just now on my mic. So let me know. People can know. Let me know if that's actually going to. I can also sit up. You already asked me to sit up before I'm slouching. All right. I'm slouching. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So 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 Purim is a, is a day to to break to break out of uh, the um, bounds the boundaries and bounds that have been set sometimes by other people, sometimes by this world. Um, sometimes by ourselves on ourselves. That's a lot of, that's probably the most, that's probably the most, probably the most is that you kind of put yourself in, in a box. You think I can't, and this helps you break out of that. Um, 
It's also, I, I think one of the things that, that is strange to me is that in, in one way of calculating, it's actually the final holiday of the year. Oh, yeah. And it's like, therefore, therefore the penultimate uh, holiday of the year, the, the, the zenith, the whole, the, the big shebang. It's and you can understand back. that Purim has got that energy. But on the other hand, and this is why the rabbis had, had such a hard time with accepting the Megillah into the canon, is that on the, one, on the other hand, that God is hidden. And maybe that is the penultimate, that God is hidden. Right. And therefore can I, we have can to... I vent, can I vent a, a pet peeve? Oh, really go ahead, say that again. Yeah, I lost you for a second. Okay, go I, ahead. I want to vent a, pen, a pet peeve. Penultimate doesn't mean the final. It means the one before the final. The one before the final. That's right. That's right. Sorry, That's people right. use it all the time. I usually yeah. ignore it. But you're you know what? I'm, like looking, I'm looking for the fancy word that's like the, the, the ultimate. And I lost it. You know what I mean? Uh, if I could, if I could get somebody help me, my friend Eric probably uh, will. Uh, our friend Eric will will probably write to me and tell me what the what the best word is. I'm looking for the. I'm just. I, and I just that didn't... I pronounced the last one incorrectly. What's that? And that I pronounced the last one. Which one? Or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. He suffers from my pronunciation more than probably anyone on the planet. <laughs> In any case, so so Purim is the ultimate. I'm gonna look up the word ultimate here on Thesaurus. But like like it's the big one. It's it's the final one. And yet one of the things that's so strange about it is that it's not the ultimate in the sense that the holiday itself doesn't bring you to the land of Israel. It doesn't bring you to the third temple. It kind of leaves you asking for more. Um there's a great a movie called Esther. As, as uh, some listeners may may recall, Malka and I basically like really try to collect Jewish movies. And and this Esther movie um, has in it a character that's basically Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, like in the in the Esther movie, which tell, tells the story of the Esther, the scroll of Esther, the Megillah. But there's this character Nehemiah, and he's like, or no, there's there's both Nehemiah and Ezra, and they're like, but our salvation is in the land of Israel. So obviously, the people who who wrote it used uh, uh, you know other parts of Jewish history around the Megillah in order to kind of throw in these characters that were like going to give it going to give it completion of yearning for the land of Israel, which is, which is in fact what the sages and what the whole history is about there, but it's not in the book. And so how is it that, 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 that the scroll of Esther, the Megillat Esther, is actually you know, the, the, the end where we complete? Is it, is it, is it just as simple as saying it, it just, you end the year by, by yearning for more, like this tremendous madness energy, this tremendous, you could flip everything, everything can happen, but you still are on the road to, to final completion? I mean, I think that that's a worthy observation. I would add to it the notion of sofo tuch of the rosho. It's a, it, it's a very important idea. The end is planted in the beginning, right? What do I mean? Is that we the, the year is a cycle, right? And 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 one might think that as a cycle, it leads to ennui. I'm gonna give that one to Eric too. Uh, I know that one. Yeah, that one, you um, said it right. <laughs> Meaning, okay, I'm going around on a sunrise, sunset. Like, what's the point? It's gonna be the same next year. Why are you so excited about Pesach? We had Pesach last year, and what? You know, but but the power of the Hebrew calendar is that it's a rising spiral, mm-hmm. right? And that and that in its spiral motion, right. You can lean into it and rise. And in order to have that element of rise, right, the Purim's got to be so big 
that when it comes back around to the beginning of the year at Pesach, it expands Pesach itself. You understand? So picture the lines kind of going like this as it goes around and around and around. And Soho Tachov Berosha, the end is actually bigger than the beginning was. Right. And therefore, it forces that beginning even wider so that the path is even greater as you forward. That's why I said that these are Somech Gula Lagula. You have to have the redemption of Purim before you can have the redemption of Pesach. You know, we talk about like 30 days before the holiday. It's Sholim Bedorshim. We're supposed to like uh, learn and prepare for the holiday, right? So what's 30 days before Pesach? It's Purim. Purim. That's right. right. You got to learn a little of the Hilchus Pesach at your Purim suit of people. It's a good minhag. Oh, nice one. I like that a lot. Okay, that's very good. I have another little minhag that I totally developed on my own and got absolutely no rabbinic supervision on, but it's not going to harm anything, is that on Yom Kippur... Don't try this at home. <laughs> on Yom Kippur, I try to read the Megillat Esther, and mm-hmm. on, on Purim, I try to do something from Yom Kippur. You read Achrei Mot. Yeah, Achrei Mot, that's a good one, but no, usually something from the liturgy is what I do. Actually, I try to daven something a little bit, like uh, I look into the I look into the Yom Kippur... Uh, uh, davening and I try to do something Ooh, like that, like Hamelech, Hamelech, right? I, I try to. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good one. It it, it 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 does it when you're. I'm gonna I'm you're, gonna sing. I'm gonna bust out uh, Marek Kohen. That's right, and, exactly and right. That's a right. good idea. I like that idea. It's it's very powerful. It's very powerful when you when you link up those two uh, those two days. And our, our sages we're tell share, us we're gonna share a couple more practical things for people to do with their suda. Next one. Okay, go ahead. Is is a great game. It's fun with the kids too. Um, good for adults as well is you take a Tanakh, like a big one, you know, and you have someone start to leaf through the Tanakh without looking, just leafing, 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 or, or it's even better to, like, have them do it like this, and then you say, stop! And wherever they stop, they have to find the reference to Purim on the page. Ooh! It's a lot of fun. You oh, get like, some really good stuff. Like Esther Minalan type of thing? Like, uh, just like, like the... you know, what's the connection? Like, what's the connection? Oh, How do you I like connect that. What you're looking at to the... And it, it, I'm telling you, every single line in the entire Tanakh, if you are open to it, can connect directly to the to the Megillah, which, by the way, is the role it plays, in my humble opinion, in the Hebrew canon. I mean, the whole discussion of whether the Megillah should go in or not. The Megillah is the keystone. If you want to understand the architecture of of the Hebrew Bible as as a unit, because our sages put quite a bit of thought, in, and you can see the difference between one of the reasons I like to say Hebrew Bible as opposed to just Bible is because you know when you say Bible, Christians have a different canon. I mean, it's right. mostly the same, but for not even getting into the specifically Christian scriptures, but there are decisions like the Book of Maccabees, probably most well known. You know, so it's important to understand that the that the um, the Megillah, which is the most crafted literary piece, as we see from the end of the Megillah itself, is a keystone. It's meant to open up its referential nature, etc. Right. So it's a it's an important thing to. It's a good game, to right? Play. It, it it puts together like like there's a lot of stories that go into it. Like for example, just little things like like when Yaakov, when Jacob tells uh, his sons finally when he gives over Benjamin Benjamin to Judah to Yehuda to take him down to Mitzrayim. So he says, "Kasher sakolti sakolti." Like if I if I die, I die, and we if hear I'm, this. If I'm bereft of my children, I bereft. That's right. Okay. If I'm lost, right, right. If I, it's right. It says kasher avarti Right. Esther says, if I'm lost, I'm lost. And he says, if I'm bereft, I'm bereft. But you can see that it's the same, it's the same energy. Of course, everybody knows the Joseph story is linked up with the Megillah very much. Uh, especially, you just, you know, you got the second, second in command, this, this vice, this, what do you want to call it? Uh, uh, you know, Prince of Egypt, Viceroy. if you want to. Viceroy, that's right. So that's so there you go. That's, that's what Joseph is. And he goes out on this carriage and they call out in front of him, Avrech. 
right? Which does not mean that he's going to be uh, studying he's all day. He's going to be a long term right. Koyal student. <laughs> yeah. Between a large cheese pizza and an avrech is? No. A large cheese pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> nick, nick, nick. Okay, very good. All right. Uh, uh, and, and so, yeah, I understand what you're saying by Keystone. But, you know, very interesting, very fascinating to me is that, and, and, and not surprising and not surprising, is that in Kumaran, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the one yeah. book they did, did not find was the scroll of Esther. The that was Esther. my point. We have a recorded argument amongst the sages in the Gemara about whether to include it or not. And you see, right. there's a reason that we call them schismatics. I mean, they probably called us schismatics too, let's be honest. But who won that argument? That sounds like a klezmer band. Schismatics. <laughs> yeah, the schismatics? Oh, that, that is a good name for a klezmer Yeah, band. the schismatics. Yeah, okay. Right, meaning that that was the group whose roots were in rabbinic Judaism who went their own way. And see where it got them. They're right? Yeah, yeah. If you don't museums now. Yeah, exactly. If you don't have if you don't have Purim, you end up just uh, you know uh... depressed and and by the side of the road. We got to talk about Simcha, man. Let's yeah, we got to talk about Simcha. Okay, that's a that's a great point. That's a great uh, a segue because right now in the world, there's a lot of there's a lot. Speaking of the schismatics, which is I think let's I think you and I should have a band. We're, we're, we're doing. I don't play any instruments, but I'm willing to be. The band. <laughs> I'll be the can I be the front man. Sure, man. You can I mean, do. I wear like fancy suits and sing the blues. Yeah. I'll be like the cool bassist guy. Boom, 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 okay. boom, boom. Okay. The, the schismatics. You're already wearing the jacket and the black shirt. You look That's good. right. That's right. The schismatics. Um, uh, the source of simcha. I have a lot of friends right now that are uh, concerned with all kinds of. It's. I don't like this term because it's also a berating term, um, which is um, they, they are. They are in the conspiracy theory realm or the rabbit hole realm. I don't like to use it. It's not a fair term because I, because I want to give them their intellectual value of, of what they're, what they're thinking and saying. And I, and I actually think that there is definitely good questions and good issues that are raised. Oh, just but in any case, conspiracy theories, I mean, it's false. Just right, like, because you're, you're paranoid doesn't mean there aren't people out to get you. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but still though, but in any case, what I have noticed is that a lot of those friends of mine are specifically in a bad mood and depressed because they really see, um, they kind of see Amalek everywhere, right? They see him, they, they see people trying to take away their freedoms and uh, turning towards totalitarianism. And then there's another group of people, which I, I you know, you know I, I actually, it was interesting, yet last week at Kiddush uh, and Shul, we were around a table outside and not sitting. We were around the table and people had masks on, but still um, we were eating and stuff. And so one guy says to the other, have you been vaccinated? So, like, basically, the whole table had been vaccinated, and there was a sense of relief. There was a sense of relief. Of uh, <laughs> and and so, anyway, but the point is, there's a lot of there's there's also people who are still concerned about the the American elections that would happen there, and there's a, a problems with the American Israeli elections coming up here, and there's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of I'll just just say it in short. There's a lot of people who are upset at people like Naftali Bennett, at people like uh, Gidon Sar, uh, at people like people in Gidon Sar's party who were all Netanyahu people who have now become his detractors. And so there's a lot of like... In fairness, if you exclude former Netanyahu people from our political system, you actually get rid of 70% of it. So Right. That's right. There's, 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 that's right. That's absolutely true. So Gidon Sar, but like, like uh, a big one was Zev Elkin and he came out Left the Likud, went over to New Hope Party, uh, and and really became began, began to besmirch Netanyahu. So a lot of people were like, 
our politics have become gross again, or maybe have never left. Then there is this concern. Then there's this concern that that we'll have to go to fifth elections. And this is such a funny thing. It's like it's like because there's like some kind of impasse. Although what's so annoying about this impasse of finding 61 Knesset members to make a coalition is that, for God's sakes, there's about like 80 Knesset members who are nationalistic and have similar opinions. So there's a lot of frustration in the air. And a lot of my good buddies and friends, not all, um, people who I, who I very, very much not only like but also respect very deeply, have, have become have gone towards a rabbit hole of a bad mood. They've been right. depressed. In fact, one of my friends, I told, him, I told him this, and he said to me that he, it really made him think, and he realized that even if he holds these opinions, he's got to feel confident and look happy with his opinions instead of being all like depressed and sullen and seeing like the enemy everywhere. And also, instead of seeing the geula everywhere, the redemption everywhere, the process that we're in everywhere, which is like a mindset that I try to keep up, which is like, wow, Hashem is everywhere. And that's what the Megillah is all about. And that's what's really happening. And like, we're living in that time. We're living in a time of revelation and redemption. It's so, big. So some of these good folks have really lost that consciousness and they need a little pick-me-up, I would say, spiritual pick-me-up to get back to it. So what is the source of Simcha? How do you find it? Oh, you know what? One more thing and then I'll let you uh, uh, opine uh-huh. on it, which is Rabbi Nachman says that you will always face problems with either child rearing health or parnasa or 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 what how did you call uh, how do we say parnasa what was the word you'd like to use Make, uh, livelihood livelihood right livelihood so so those you'll oh he says rabbi nachman says you'll always have a problem with one of those things child rearing health or livelihood there'll always be a thing even if everything's always. great you'll find a, a little uh, uh you know quotes uh, a little some kvetch some kvetch some boo-boo some on your uh, some krechts. So you'll always find something. He says, He says, and that is the secret of happiness. You have to know that it cannot be dependent on all things being perfect. It's just not going to work out that way. You've got to find inner joy. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's so true. And I think that um, the keystone to understanding happiness, and by the way, let's, let's see, we can take it out of the realm of the conspiracy theorists who are feeling, you know, the walls closing in, into just the general thing. It's been a hard year. Let's remember, yeah. this is the last holiday which we had not celebrated on, yet under COVID. When yes. I think back to the last Purim suit, it was like Shemaim. We're sitting on the porch and the sunshine and Yushalayim's in the background and the madness is on the rise. Just feeling mamash free. Um, right. And, I was and, I was in B, I was in like semi bedude. I was one of the first people. Really? I just came back from America and I, I had remember, been at CPAC and APAC. Yeah, yes, and I came I back and I was that. like and, – and they actually – there was a big party. They canceled it in part because of me. Uh, and and I was like that, that that was the beginning. I remember that. I remember speaking to you. But so meaning, <clears throat> I just want to honor the fact that that even people who don't sort of uh, aren't aren't uh, drawn down into that rabbit hole as you called it. Of this, is, is, people are struggling to be happy. And I think that the keystone to understanding the avoda. Well, first of all, actually, the keystone to understanding the avoda is that it's an avoda. It takes work to be happy. I know that may be cliche and you've heard it before, but don't forget that. Happiness is not just a mood. It's true, moods come and go, and and, and, and I also want to make a very important caveat that depression is a very real thing, mm-hmm. and if a person is, is feeling that they've lost sight, that there's any emotional state outside of their sadness, if they've lost motivation for taking action, for self-care, etc., please, please, please speak to someone, because depression is a real thing, and it's dangerous, and, and you know, look, look out for the people around you. That, I yeah. mean, I, I, I'm not speaking out. I'm talking about being sad and, like, why should I be happy now? 
right? <clears throat> so I think that the keystone there, aside from memory that's in a vote, that just takes work, is one line in the entire Megillah, which actually explains, especially to the conspiracy folks, because I think that the reason that, and, and by the way, I am not out of the bounds of conspiracy theorists. I want to make that mm-hmm. clear. Trust mm-hmm. me, as, as our conversation before the show proves. Um, but I think that one of the challenges, you know, conspiracy theories all hinge on this idea that there's a group of people somewhere controlling things, right? And they're doing for whatever their reasons are, not good reasons and then It's the control piece that makes them sad, right? Because the whole wisdom of Mordecai's stance in the Megillah is summed up in the one spoken line that he gets. It's not even spoken. He sends it as a message through Hatach to, to Esther while she's in the harem. But it's the only line he actually articulates in the entire Megillah, right? Which is often missed when you read it because he does this, he does that. and so, No, the Megillah talks about what he does and talks about what he said, but it doesn't actually tell you his words until you get that famous, famous line, right? Right? If you hold silent, right? He sends to Esther saying, you got to do something. Haman's going to kill us all. And she says, everybody knows that, like, I'm just going to die by going to king. He says, if you hold silent at this moment, what you want him to say is, like, it, we're all going to go down. He says, but he doesn't. He says, First and foremost, you have to remember that God is holding the big picture, not some cabal of wacky fascists in a dark room somewhere. God is holding the big picture. Now, that may not make it easier because it's also God that brought COVID and it's also God that brings personal tragedy, et cetera. That's, I'm not, that's where the avoda comes. But it's important to remember that, that who's in charge. There's, a, there's another place. There's a context, a horizon, which is bigger than that. But the real key to happiness is the next piece. When he says to Esther, okay, you're not here to save the Jews per se, but you're in danger. You're in danger, he says, right? Right? Right, you and your father's house, you're going to perish if you don't act. That's the essentials. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe this is your chance. That's the key to happiness. Except in the fact that you don't know. That, that, that this world that you think you understand, that you've defined, that the, whether it's conspiracy theorists or how it's going to be bad or why I should be, let go of that a little bit. And accept the fact you don't know and take it as a call to action. Because, because the way to be happy is, number one, to realize that you're not in charge, that God's in charge. Number two, that you are you still have agency. But you, you need to take action. You don't necessarily know what that action is right now. But that's how you maintain happiness. I'm going to take action to make the world look the way I believe it should look. Am I going to succeed? I don't know. Because that's a, that's a train wreck. If, you, if it's obsessive need to see, no. But in that not knowing, and that's why I said before, that's what Forum's about. Who knows? Who knows and and you say it with a smile instead of a who knows that's my take if i'm out that's that's really good and and that brings me to excuse me one of the great stories that i ever heard in my life from one of the greatest storytellers that's around today his name is rabbi mendel kaplan out of toronto at uh, flamingo chabad center it's called rabbi flamingo. Mendel, it's called, flamingo. It's actually, flamingo it's actually called flamingo like it's called king. flamingo it's one of the most beautiful shows in Miami, right? And that's Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. He's he's a real he's an honest to god genius. Um, and um, a few years ago, I was in Toronto. Where even is that? Like I don't Where's even Toronto? know where. Yeah, where is it? I don't even know what that is or where that is. Or but I remember frozen north. It's in the frozen north. So. Yeah, I remember I was I was out there and um, and he told me this story about Purim. He told me that once he was a bacher. He was a he was a student in Yerushalayim, and he on on on. Uh, 
on Yom Kippur unmarried. morning. That's the difference for right. those who are following. That's right. And he, anyway, he was in. A, he was. He went to the mikvah. He was coming out of the mikvah, and he saw some old guy, uh, old man, and the old man was like crashing. Oi, oi, oi! And he said to him, and he said to him, you know, and he's, this is all in Yiddish, right? So he says, "What's what's wrong? What's happening?" And the guy says to him, "I hate Purim." An old religious Jew, and the old Jew says to him, uh, he, "So Rav, Rav Mendel says to him, you hate Purim?'" He goes, "Yeah, I hate Purim." He goes, "I never know if I heard the whole Megillah Esther correctly. I don't know if I heard it all because there's a mitzvah to hear every word of the Megillah. So I listened to it five times, and even still, I'm not sure that I didn't miss one word." Then um, uh, there's metanot levinim I have to give to poor people, but I don't really know if the guy that I'm giving to is actually poor or not, and therefore I don't know if I fulfilled the mitzvah. And finally, I drink, and I never know if, if like I can really fulfill adeloy adad. Did I really drink enough? Did I go to sleep? Is that the halacha? What is I the... always end up passing out before I know whether I don't know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sorry. He, and he goes, I hate Purim. For this reason, and so and so, you know, it really ties into. And Rabbi Rabbi Mendel's conclusion is Rabbi Mendel's conclusion was and is that uh, that you know that's where you have to have a you know a more Hasidic outlook, a more uh, how should we say spiritual, more more inner light kind of attitude, and not just get like trapped by the legalistic control things. But that ties into what you're talking about, inside. right? The little litfak inside the what I call the pintula, the pintula misnagid. Um, in any case. Which is fine, you know. I I, I actually have a pintula misnagid inside. Oh yeah, uh, mine's, and, mine's bigger than a pintula. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a growth. It's a growth, Yishai. Oi, oi! I give up. So, so uh, it's, it's, it. but I, I just want to tell you that I love that story so much yeah. that I that I begged him to record it for me and to and to and to and to send it to me on WhatsApp, and then I uploaded that audio. Uh, into my Google Drive, so I have it. And every year, I listen to him tell that story again. It's the funniest. Okay. It's just he's he's a great storyteller. Uh, but I think that's also in part what you're talking about here, which is the sense of um, this this tension between between con- freedom uh, and and control, our control of our lives, and at the same time understanding that we don't have control, and yet 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 we still have agency. Like we 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 have a lot, but or we have a little, and we and it is our freedoms. But it's not everything, and, and there's a tension between trusting yourself and trusting your freedoms and, and trusting the other and then trusting God and, and trusting your society around you. Uh, I, I, it's a, it, yeah. It's a here's, here's a situation I had in Shul, Rav Mike Foyer. Here, here's a situation I had in Shul last Shabbat. There's a really great guy in Shul, but he's a deep anti-vaxxer. Not but. He, and he is a deep anti-vaxxer. Um, and he came to Shul without his mask on. Hmm. So then one dude, let's call him straight-laced dude, Straight lace, dude. Which is, and I again, I'm, I'm really anybody who's listening to me. Please do not in any way assume that I am, you know, that I am that I'm coming down in judgment on either one of these gentlemen. Um, although, I'll, I'll go on with the story. So the straight lace guy said to 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 not, anti-vaxxer guy he said to him, put on you know put on your mask, please. You know, it's uh, that's the that's the law. And the guy said to him in no other words than go to hell. And and this is the middle of shul, and straight lace guys like, hey guys, like what's going on here? Uh, and he turned to the rabbi, and the rabbi turned to anti-vaxxer, and he said to him, you know, please put on your mask. And and the 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 anti-vaxxer nicely said to the rabbi, I am not complying with that. He, and he didn't th- tell the rabbi to go to hell. 
No, he did not. But then anti-vaxxer, uh, then uh, straight lace guy says to me, he says to me, New, what do you think of the situation? So I said to him, uh, this was a strange moment because, anyway, I said to him, I said to him, look, the mitzvah of davening in a minion with with the quorum is derabanan is only a rabbinic law, but pikuach nefesh is deraita. Yeah, sure. Right, and therefore, if you think that you have a pikuach nefesh, you should leave the shul right now. Ooh, that's tough. Yeah, right. And he said to me, he said to me, but he's forcing me out. I said, I said yes. But I don't have any way to make him comply. I have no vehicle to comply. And therefore, if you think that this is a pikuach nefesh moment, you should leave. Yeah. And I think and, a, there's, there's wisdom in that answer, but it's uncomfortable from a sort of social it, it was. I, ju- I just want to add one more little caveat, which is the anti-vaxxer guy did actually go through COVID himself. Okay. And he, he, he meaning to say he should be, you know, already. But in any case, it was a very right. tough moment. When when we came out of shul, I, I gave it to anti-vaxxer and I said to him, look, I understand that you believe what you believe, which is fine. But like you're forcing it upon other people. We have a, you're, you're, you're saying everybody's an idiot and, and, and the society can't decide for itself. This town and this, this country and this town has decided how it wants to behave. That's the law. And you're flouting that law and you're putting people in very uncomfortable situations. Mm-hmm. And that's really unfair. But he said to me, this is, he said to me, this is like the, this is like the, um, what do you call it? The ghetto, the, um, uh, the Warsaw ghetto. The Warsaw ghetto. Right. And, and people are dying all around, but we're not like fighting it. And, and, you know, we're, we're succumbing to these lies. I mean, if a person believes that, that's a, you know, I mean, there's yeah. a, once, once you, once you pull the Warsaw ghetto card, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go home and get some coffee. So what, you I'm, sit I'm, here I'm, and, and stew in your wackiness. I'm asking you now in your in your ethicist capacity here. Let me put on my ethicist hat. Yeah, I'm putting on. Remember, there was a New York Times column called the Ethicist. I, I think there still is. That was a good one. That was a good column because because those were challenging questions. So really I wasn't an yeah yeah I was in an ethicist moment here, and and that's what I came up with. The the straight lace guy was not happy with my response, but I was just like, you know, he was he was trying to be uh, the law. And I said to him, I don't think you have agency to be the law. You, you, you're just going right. to have to walk out of here. P.S., just so you know, parenthetically, he said to me, I said to him, uh, if you think your life is in danger, you should leave. He said to me, no, I don't think so. Minastam, he know, knew that he was himself was vaccinated, and he right. probably didn't believe. Anyway, so what, what See, do you and, think of that and, situation? Well, and that's where the problematic comes in, is what, what the, 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 the force there that's being played around is compliance right. and a feeling of safety. And I think that you did the exact right thing, which is you in, in the, and this is one of the people are struggling with is such a gray situation. Like I feel safe. I don't feel safe. I feel oppressed. I don't, I, you know, et cetera. You reach for something which is actually tangible, which is like, wait a minute. Why are you here? Mr. Anti-vaxxer or Mr. Vaxxer? Because you want to dive in a minion. That's great. You know, why are you concerned? The only legit concern, and I agree with you, the only legit concern is safe, health, public health and safety, which is a real concern. It's a real concern. There could be someone who's not vaccinated there, or and by the way, the vaccination sure. is not one hundred percent. And so then, you know, you did a halachic issue, a halachic analysis, and said that okay, if you need to, then you should leave. The the problem, I would say that that it was a good, and and following up with the sort of the musr, the moral ethical lesson to the anti-vax guys is is excellent. There's one last piece I would say is what are what are the what's the takanan of the shul? Meaning what rules is the 
has the shul established? Because aside from the sort of general, you're supposed to wear a mask, you're not, I'm, I'm not going to let you oppress me. On some level, there is a very explicit social contract in belonging right. to any organization. And like my shul has been very explicit. They've expressed that we are just going to be strict. Even children, you know, below the age of one, we expect them to either be with a mask or be outside, etc. And like, you don't have to agree, but here's our rules. We post it on the wall. There's a vod of the shul. And like, if you don't, Want to agree? There are other shuls, there are other places to go, right? And so that's the other piece I would say there is because because society breaks down very quickly when people d- determine that they, they are the only, the sole decisor of their behavior, right? And that and that's what and that's what Straight Lace guy said to me. He's like, it's like this is going to be a breakdown of the law here, and I totally agree with him that 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 that. But on the other hand, on the other hand, and this is my dilemma inside, is that I am loath to quash the freedom the freedom people like today yeah. i understand especially being a jew who has gone through the disengagement uh and understanding how societal pressure from top down you know did this horrible thing which we knew was wrong and we knew was societally and, but wrong con- but convince enough people out there with a with a very clear systematic approach to psychology and advertising etc convince enough people out there and they train the army i can tell you horrible stories my friend who was a in in training as an industrial psychologist within the army while this was going on horrible the tools absolutely absolutely by the way i was called into reserve duty for the disengagement uh because my my unit want was going to be part of it and they said to me well are you going to fulfill orders i said to them let's just save time why don't you just arrest me now (laughs) <laughs> That's I, told them. I said just arrest me they were like are you serious i'm like right now to cart me away because there is no way that i'm going to be part of this thing and they were like and of course i did not get called in but right, the point right. is is that is that like that's an important spirit and, and you know what else Rev mike and, and here's uh, still keep your ethicist hat on um if i knew 100 percent that something was like evil then i would i i wouldn't have moral dilemma like if I thought that that guy in Shul was the the anti-vaxxer was promulgating something that I knew for sure was an evil, for sure, right? He's I would I, I, in people's spaces. Yeah, and I, 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 I would pick him up with my hands and, and chuck him out. You know what I mean? And then wash them thoroughly afterwards. Right. Exactly. By the way, just just to close this part of the discussion, I just want you to know that my my beloved brother Josh, uh, who does a lot of amazing filming in in the land of Israel, um, went yesterday to Sheba Medical Center. I think the biggest hospital in the Middle East, and uh, and and filmed at the Corona Ward, uh, and um, the doctors with with tears in their eyes uh, said to him, you know, you don't understand what people face with this disease. People lose their lungs. People this and that. And they gave him the the you know he came out very clear that that uh, the the the, the vac- vaccination is good. And that and that it saves people's lives and you know and from from their perspective, uh, real freedom is to be rid of this disease, and from other people's perspective, including a uh, famous political actor here in Israel, Moshe Feiglin, uh, the and and a friend of mine who told me that the cartoons that are being used in order to get people to vaccinate are Chinese-like because he just came out from China. I'll play that interview next week. Um, you know, it's such a tension between freedom. And 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 what we are being told is public health. I don't know. I find myself. I find myself like understanding both sides. And and and, Listen, and, and you're you're a Jew. This is the nature of although discourse. although 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 full discourse. Full disclosure. Excuse <clears throat> me. Full disclosure. I've had, I I had my second shot. Yes, as have I. 
I mean, right. and and what I meant when I said you're a Jew is that like one of the powers and beauties of the tradition that we've inherited and that we continue to please God push forward in the world is that we understand that everything is a values negotiation. You know, right. people make fun of the like, on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, you can't be right. And you, it, but, the, but the reality is that's actually far more reflective of the reality of life. There's no simple path. And, and, and people, you know, and, um, you know, it's funny where, you know, it's poor. People want to talk about Amalek and they say, but Amalek is doubt. Amalek is a suffix, you know, Amalek is the gematria suffix, right? You hear how many times you've heard that. It's the same numeric value as the word for doubt. Therefore, what's the solution to Amalek? You should have no doubt. You should be certain, right? Wrong. Wrong. Did you just listen to the line I just read you? Mi odea. Mordecai is only certain about one thing. Kodesh Baruch is in charge. Right. That you have to be certain about. So you're saying that the opposite of doubt is faith. The opposite of doubt is Is emunah. Is what? The opposite of doubt is wonder. Wonder. It's the ability. I'm I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about psychology. It's the ability to live in a world which you don't comprehend. Right. But instead of saying, I don't know, saying, I don't know. That's (laughs) the key to happiness, right? Meaning, like, if you think you know, you have no hope. Because hope, the essence of hope is understanding that what is doesn't necessarily define what will be. Something can happen. Who knows? I don't know. Without that wonder, there is no hope. Without hope, there's no life. Right? And, and, and that's why, by the way, so often um, what, what we associate with religious, religious fanaticism, like true fanaticism, is a miserable state of being. Right. Right. That's right. Missionary types, missionary types, I've noticed, are never happy and never satisfied. As opposed to, by the way, the other type of religious ecstaticism as opposed to fanaticism, which is just a God-saturated world. And, okay, I can't explain to you why bad things happen. And I can't explain to you why. But I, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, the wonder of it. The mm. wonder. It's so big. So important. Very good. Let me let me just uh, do uh, a few of our listeners' comments here. We have Jay White who says, Shalom, gentlemen. Thank you again for your prayers each week from my mother, Yvette Bat Irene who has been struck with COVID. She's now awake and conscious, Baruch Hashem. Purim, yes. Samach, lots of love. So continued, Rifuash Lemat to Yvette Bar Irene. Please come out of the hospital Amen. soon. Amen, Hashem. Amen, amen. And thank, thank you, you so much, Jay. Amen. Uh, and uh, Yaakov Walk, with good sense of humor, says that Purim was the yard site of social life. Social life. <laughs> right, we've come all around to the year. Nice. That's right. Nice. Well, well I've, I, I just want to say that I, right from the get-go, I really felt that this was a type of Shemitah year, a type of Shemitah year, a type of closure, a type of Shemitah year for a lot of stuff. And um, I predict that we're going to come out of this stronger, healthier, happier, and, and really onto a, the next the next shlav, the next it's stage of... Uh, I, I, I felt that inside. Okay, and says, Shalom from the UK with fond memories of special Purim a few years ago in your neighborhood, Yishai. All right, and God bless you. Which neighborhood are you referring to? Do you mean yeah, the Mount of Olives? You've lived yeah. in a number of places. A I few places. Place. Now, our good friend Lou says the anti-vaxxer should not go to the minion. Right. Uh, that's the si- that, that would be the simple thing, right? That would no, be. But the that was my thing. point about having a, having mm-hmm. rules for the shul. Meaning, meaning it is legitimate for a synagogue, as with any association, to have rules. You know, if you don't want to be part of the rules, so don't be in the club. Is that right. right? But he want right, right. But and, and but in within his mind, he's a saving people. And and by the way, if you've read the, the latest thing that Fagelin put out, he's like calling like, like basically. I'm always wary of people whose justification for their behavior is I'm saving you. Right. <laughs> I'm like you know, you know, get back off a little bit. I'll save myself. I'm willing to hear what you have to say from a distance. <laughs> I, I I hear you, Rev Mike Foyer. I hear you 100. percent And yet, 
today, where we live in the age of information control, data mining, Chinification of our, of our world, when I see a guy who's a rebel like that, and by the way, this the anti-vaxxer guy is a smart guy and a wealthy guy, I meaning so he's, he's, he's been successful in his life. He ain't no down and outer, okay? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's a solid dude. He's a gvir, I would say. Uh, and so I say, I'm like, I'm like, oh, th- like there's a part of me that says there's some kind of a Jewish gene in me that says, oh, good. Good that there's like a, you know, a, a dude that's like, uh, you know, not going to conform so easily. I, I'm with I, you I, and, I, and I, I support it. My point is very, it's, it's just simpler. And this is, I think, the point Lou is making. Okay, but that does not give you the right, right to violate the basics of the social contract. Right. So stand outside the shul with a sign or, or, right. or talk to your friends, mm. make up, a, but, but, but it is not okay right. You're to undermine the yes. basic Right. Elements of the social fabric, which is there's a social contract with every association freely formed. There's your freedom, freely formed. You are free to leave. Thank you very much. By the way, I'm, I'm I, I hate to bring the I really I I really did not want to talk about this stuff today, but <laughs> I I, I, I going to do it. I know, but it, it, but it's such a big thing around. It's all around us. There's one more thing I have to say that my mother said. This is a medical thing. My mom told me that, she, that she, my mom's a scientist and a serious person. She told me that she, that she's read reports that basically explain that. That where, where do the new um, strands, strains, mutations come from? It's not from a people who've been vaccinated, where the where the when the virus strikes, usually dies pretty quickly because the because the system is ready for it, and it's not in old people who either get very sick or actually succumb to it, God forbid, and die. Uh, she says it's actually in healthy people. Healthy yeah, people sure. whose system fights it, that's yes. when the that's the where virus the virus is adapting and in the in the, the minor strain is able to survive a little bit more and increase. Yeah, it's, I mean you're a human petri dish. Right. <laughs> that's that's that, that is exactly what happens. Okay, we have uh, just another five minutes, I, th- I think, so I, I want to use them properly for a little bit more Torah. We have a Torah portion of Tetzave, which is the only Torah portion in the whole the whole Torah that after we the from book of Moses. The whole right, the whole books of Moses. Good. Uh, after after the Torah portion of Exodus, Shmot, there's not one Torah portion except for this one that does not mention Moses's name. This is the one that 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 mentions that does not mention Moses' name. The beauty, obviously, is that it 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 uh, it's at the same time as it comes almost every year at the same time as Purim, where you don't have the name the name of God mentioned in the Megillah. Uh, the explanations that the sages give is that there, when, one time when, when Moses and God are, are arguing about the fate of the Jewish people, he says, erase me from the book which you have written. And so even that, that phrasing one time, even though it was not fulfilled, Moses is certainly not erased from the book of the Moses. God the eraser was like, I'll just get out of Tetzaveh. Right, I'll, I'll get you out on Tetzaveh. And Tetzaveh is really about, I'm saying this in, in, in quote marks, uh, the competition to Moses, which is his brother Aaron. And I say this in quote marks because it indeed was never a competition, and that's one of the beauties of Aaron, is that he is indeed, his priesthood and his priestliness is not in competition with Moses. But this is this is about how the priest is going to be dressed, the, the vestments of the priest, of the high priest, which is Aaron at the time anyway. That's the original high priest. And, and this is the non-Moses Torah portion, ostensibly. Yeah. This is, and, and we have here also bookends of very spiritual 
uh, vessels, and that is the oil that's gathered for the lighting of the menorah, and at the very end, the uh, altar of the the spices, the the uh, the um, incense, misbech ketoret, right? The incense, the 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 misbech ketoret or misbech zahav, which is in the in the kind of in, inner courtyard uh, of the kodesh, and which is lit twice a day, um, and and kind of a puff of sweet smelling. Uh, smoke and, and incense. incense burning happens uh, at the tabernacle and later the temple, and th- and then and we get and we've done this in previous years in our show a big discussion about the various uh, various uh, vestments, vestments right uh, of the coin gadol, including the names of all the tribes of Israel. Uh, there's there's not a little bit of writing on the he's a kind of a walking billboard he's got the 12 tribes behind the 12 tribes there is also the the ineffable name of god written he's got the 12 tribes on the shoulders and he's got kodesh lashem on his it's written on his forehead right there uh, on he, his forehead <laughs> what's it called diadem diademan diademan or something this diadem diadem right diadem uh, so he's got I have like, one if you want to borrow it do you really I'd like to see that. You probably use it for a laser thing when, when there's heretics flying says, out there. No, it says, what are you looking at? <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, we know that Prohibition Pickle has the coin kadol, but on the forehead it says, oh, Givalt. 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 That's what it says. And the, the Ketorit herring is actually really, really good. I'm that's looking right. Forward. And that's... Forward. I'm actually going to tell you now because uh, we don't live in the same city, but um, I'm, I'm giving out a, a mini Kiddush box for my uh, my. My Mishloch Mana. Wow. What does herring, it have in it? Herring pickle crackers. I mean, listen, I'm not the wealthiest man you've ever known, but I think it'll it'll go well. <laughs> so I want to give you a thought on Moshe. I want to think of a thought on Moshe and why he's not there. You ready? Because i got to get out of here. So. Yeah, sure. The, I Go the, for it. The work is long. The time is short. The master is you pressing. Bet. Um, you bet. The, I think the reason that Moshe is absent here, at least in, in the experience sense, because, of course, he's, is, is ultimately present because he's still giving us this Torah, is Moshe is about content. And this is a partial about context. Now, you could say the same thing about truma, and, and we'd have to figure out what's the difference there. But, and I don't mean context as, a, as sort of belittling that. I mean, that Aaron's role as Kohen Gadol, and really the whole Mishkan, is to understand the power of the aesthetics, of, uh, to, to really have a spiritual impact. Moshe, we know, was never the person of aesthetics, right? He's Lashon, like we've spoken about, as you so nicely said. He just says it like it is. He's all about the actual reality and not how it needs to be heard by you in order that you could understand it, except that's our own. Right? So, so on one hand, you can't separate the two. There's no, you know, there's no content without context, no context of any meaning without content. But, but here it's to show, it's to elevate, I think. The, the context element to understand that these aren't just pretty clothes. Nor, by the way, should we reduce them to symbolic representations of content, which we can also learn a lot from each of them. Right? They teach it, but no, they need to be um, visualized and embraced as an independent aesthetic and therefore moral experience. And right? this is why, as we've spoken about in previous years, the detail here is like, well, why do I care? Why is this? I mean, it's four parsha between Shumat Tetzava and then Vayakup Kude, right? Why? The answer is because you need to brand this into your mind to be able to picture the Kohen Gadol in these eight vestments, walking into the Kodesh with the Shulchan on his right and the Menorah on his left and the and the and the golden altar before him and and see the the parochet separating the Kodesh Kodeshim and imagine what's beyond it. If you can picture that in your mind, that is a gateway to a different type of spiritual practice. And that's, I think, and it's important to remove the content from it for a little while to understand that that is a legitimate 
part of our avoda. I think that really speaks of the stuff that you said before, which is wonder, want to wander. Uh, and it is it is a wonder, and it is a wonder to be able to see these things with your own eyes. And Bizrat Hashem, we really look forward to the day where we will see again uh, the Arna Kodesh, that menorah, the smell, that smell of the Ketoret. And it is a wonder. It's also a wonder where these things are. Uh, it's a wonder what they look like. It's a wonder to meet the man. And, and it's certainly a wonder to to really get close to, to God. Ayin ba'ayin, el elokim b'tzion. We will see Hashem eye to eye here in Zion. Bezrat Hashem. I want to wish you a great and happy Purim. Um, I'll, I, if I don't see you, then I'm going to try to call you at least uh, and have l'chaim with you uh, oh. if possible. Uh, or nice. Zoom l'chaims, I think, are, are also the call of the day. So Zoom your friends and have have, have your glasses uh, raised high and ready. grill for Shabbos, just so you know, for the, a couple hours before Shabbat. So it's a good time. Good, gotcha. I will be receiving on my porch <laughs> and in my ears. Very Whether good. Are we coherent or not? Who knows? That's right. And we're going to have a Lachaim. Rabbi Mike, Rav Mike and myself are going to have a Lachaim for you out there, wherever you are, uh, around the world, in the land of Israel, outside of the land of Israel, Jew and Gentile, friend of the God of Israel. Uh, we will have a Lachaim for you. We're having a Lachaim for you right now. Uh, spiritually speaking, and God bless you wherever you are, folks. Thank you so much for being with me. There's more great stuff on the way uh, if you're listening on podcast, a lot more, so stay tuned for that and lots of love and lots of blessings from the land of blessings. Rev. Mike Foyer, happy Purim, Shabbat Shalom, and thanks again. Good Purim, good oh, Shabbos. And if people want more of Rev. Mike Foyer, please check out RevMike.com or JewishStory.co for Jewish History Podcasts and, of course, Spiritual Counseling as well. Rev. Mike, thanks again. Shabbat shalom. All right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show and we're broadcasting from Judea. And I do want to hear from you, so write me an email, Yishai, YishaiFleischer.com. Makes such a difference. So just pull the car over right now and just safely and just, you know, fire off a tiny email because it makes all the difference to hear from you. And I really want to thank Rav Mike Foyer. But now we're going on to Rabbi Yehuda Hakohen from visionmag.org. He indeed is a visionary. And we talk about vision for the Jewish people and the next step in Hebrew liberation in the land of Israel. Uh, Where is Israel supposed to go? What is going to be with the Palestinian question? And really, are we going to discuss? Are we going to put the question of the vision up for discussion or are we just going to keep going without actually thinking about about where it is that we want to go. So that's coming up right now with Rabbi Yehuda Cohen. So stick with us. Lots of love. Send me that email, and here we go. Friends from around the world, welcome to The Great Debate. Not a debate where both sides work to defeat one another, rather a debate where both sides come together to find common ground on the most important issues of our time. Today, an exciting one. We have two Jews living in the West Bank. Now, you might be thinking, Jews living in the West Bank, what could they possibly disagree on? Well, you'd be surprised. Jews living in the West Bank are by no means monolithic, and today we're going to explore just that. Uh, we're going to start just by hearing, f- feel free to introduce to introduce yourselves, but I, I also want to hear from you both your vision for the state of Israel. So, Yishai, we'll start with you. Okay, first thing, Adar, thank you so much for having me back on on The Great Debate. It's fun to be with you. And it's fun to be with uh, Rabbi Yehuda Cohen, who is a dear friend and somebody who I tremendously respect uh, in his work uh, and has and has gifted me, granted me a lot of knowledge uh, through his labor of trying to teach people 
and to give people vision for, for the Jewish state and for a better Middle East. So it's really an honor to be with, with both of you. Um, my name is Ishai Fleischer, Rabbi Ishai Fleischer. I have the great schut, the great merit of serving today as the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron, Hebron. Uh, that really means that I work for the tombs of the forefathers and mothers, which are in Hebron. Uh, that's the forefathers and mothers that are the founders of our peoplehood. So that's Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah. And the book of Genesis uh, and the, its heroes. Uh, is... Yisha, I'm not hearing you. Is that just on mine? Yeah. All right, you're back. Little, you got... little mic hiccup. Wait, okay. Yehuda, did, did he cut? Did he cu- were you able to hear him the whole time? I was able to hear him the whole time. Oh, okay. I guess. Okay, that's on me. My bad. No worries. Sorry about that. Uh, in any case, back to Hebron. Uh, it's such an honor and a pleasure to work for them. For me, as just my, my who, who I am inside, the thing that really, really, really drives me inside, and people ask me sometimes, like, what, what, what motivates you so much? What really, really, at the end, motivates me is the words of the Torah. And that's something that happened to me from a young age. The first time I picked up the Torah and I was not born into a religious, observant religious family, when I first got a hold of it, immediately it shone. It like a light came out of the words and I was like, wow, this is real. And, uh, and my parents, when they discovered this Torah, they immediately felt that it was also just real. And I think it actually uh, fits right into what today is about. Uh, today here in Israel already, it's the 7th of Adar, Zion Adar which is the birthday and the passing day of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our master, uh, who gave us this Torah from Sinai. And so uh, for me, working for the people who are the founders of the peoplehood, who are buried in Hebron, who are the stars of the book of Genesis, is one of the greatest honors uh, of my life. And, and this follows a whole set of efforts for the last 20 years uh, to help really do one thing, which is to make Israel more central in the eyes of Jewish people, in the eyes of the world, uh, and even deeper than that is to help bring God's presence to Zion. We, we have, a, we have a, a, a blessing that we say in the 18 benedictions prayer, Blessed are you God who returns his presence to Zion. And that has been my driving impulse for many years. And my first job in Israel was to manage a radio station uh, called Israel National News and Israel National Radio, Arut Sheva's uh, English language radio. And in that capacity, I was able to bring a lot of great broadcasters, including Rabbi Yehuda, uh, into, the, uh, into the fold of, of using their time here in Israel, uh, being here in Israel in the land, but still broadcasting out into the world. And our messages were the rights of the Jewish people to the land of Israel and Judea and Samaria, um, getting closer to Torah, coming on Aliyah, or at least being more connected, minimally being more connected, and then coming on Aliyah to the land of Israel and leaving wrong ideas and, and even different religions coming closer to the Jewish story and, and the Jewish way of seeing things. And we had a great range of broadcasters. And I, and I kept working in, in radio for many years and uh, was privileged to, to bring a lot of voices that kind of have become already famous today, everybody from Eve Harrow to, to Rabbis uh, Ari and Jeremy. Uh, and, and a lot of good folks that you know today uh, came through the hallways of Arutz Sheva and later on Voice of Israel. And since I got a job at, uh, at Hebron, I've had an opportunity to do a lot of things, including beautifying the Tomb of the Mothers and Fathers. Yehuda, in the meantime, feel, feel free to, to introduce yourself and share your vision for the State of Israel. Sure. Um, my name is Yehuda. Uh, I've, I've been here roughly almost 20 years. 
I was born and raised in New York. Um, first person in my family actually to be born in the United States. Uh, my parents had come from elsewhere. And uh, in both my parents' families, there had been a lot of migration as well, meaning that even though I had been born in New York, we didn't really have roots there. My parents didn't really have roots in other countries either. Uh, the last place is that the last place that either side of my family had roots was here. And uh, for me, coming back to this country almost 20 years ago was really um, bringing my family's story uh, full circle. Uh, Aisha is back. I'm, I'm going to give Aisha an opportunity to uh, continue. We, we have to remember that there's like snowfall around here, as you can see in my background. So, uh, so it's just like the internet is a little bit spotty right now. The whole internet dropped out. Uh, Rabbi Hood, I was missing some of your stuff, and I'm looking forward. I hope you repeat it uh, afterwards for me. Uh, in any case, you, you mentioned your parents, Rabbi Hood. I just want to say uh, my parents are very instrumental for me. Uh, they are Russian refuseniks. They, they fought the Soviet Union, literally fought the Soviet Union, sat in prison in the Soviet Union. My father did, uh, and my mother was involved and uh, was constantly being dragged into the KGB in order to uh, get information out of her. But the bottom line is she wanted out, and she wanted to be a Zionist. She wanted to come to the land of Israel. And that informs me a lot. The other thing that informs me is uh, actually my birth date. I, I was born uh, on June 26, 1976, basically the day that the Entebbe airplane, the Air France airplane, was, was taken hostage. And, uh, and my, my day of my Brit Milah was on the day of its liberation. And I think that that had something, uh, some kind of effect on my spiritual psyche if you will, to, to fight for the, for the Jewish people and of Israel. And I guess another great thing that, that Rabbi Hood and I share is uh, the service in the Israeli army. And uh, I, I especially enjoyed my service in the reserve duty in, uh, in an elite paratrooper uh, unit, which was, which was really amazing. Uh, I was talking about Hebron earlier, just that, that, that uh, a few, about four years ago, the organization that is dedicated to giving... Um, to giving recognition of World Heritage Sites, which is called UNESCO, declared that the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron is actually a Palestinian World Heritage Site in, in danger by Israel. And at the time, uh, I was in the office when we first heard this, and I said to everybody in the office, I said, hey, we've got to fight this. We've got to totally push back against this. And everybody said to me, it's a waste of time. Uh, we're not going to win this vote, and we can't beat these organizations. We might as well just do what we do. And I said to them, we have got to fight even if we lose. It'll be good for our self-respect, for our self-esteem, and we have to fight. And I initiated that fight within our offices uh, and made video clips and other things and, and got donors to, to give us money to make great clips against UNESCO. But, but interestingly, that ball that, ball that we started rolling – it started started getting bigger and bigger, became a big giant snowball. And the first thing happened was that the deputy foreign minister Tsipi Khatubeli asked us for information. We gave it to her within 24 hours, made posters for her, made stuff, and she uh, uh, addressed down the ambassadors of different countries that belong to UNESCO. And she used our material, and it went on and on and on in other organizations. And then we had I just told you about Tsipi Khatubeli, but there was also. Tsipi Livni, who's on the Israeli left, uh, but she also said, hey, Marat Machpelah, the Tomb of the Fathers and Mothers, is our land, and this is wrong of UNESCO's decision, so I call that a tale of two Tsipis. Uh, and this tale of two Tsipis showed that there was, a, there was consensus throughout Israel. Um, and indeed, we got, uh, uh, we, uh, finally, 
Prime Minister Netanyahu pulled out five, the five million shekels that Israel gave UNESCO at the time. He pulled out one million and gave it to the Jewish community of Hebron and our sister city Kiryat Arba. But that wasn't enough. Uh, the Trump administration, in, in this case, um, Nikki Haley, who was the ambassador to the UN, decided to pull the United States out of UNESCO because of the anti-Hebron decision. I was sitting in the audience at APAC when she announced, Nikki Haley announced, that they're pulling out of UNESCO specifically because of the anti-Hebron decision, and I stood up and clapped. Most people, 20,000 people in the audience, didn't even understand who is UNESCO, why is it important, and what exactly, where exactly the Tomb of the Fathers and Mothers are. So most Jews were disconnected from this decision, but she uh, and the, the administration understood its importance. Uh, and at the same time, uh, in Hebron, we get a chance to not only fight uh, recalcitrant forces, but make new relationships with uh, Arabs and, and other people, Palestinians, uh, in, in our town and in the city and in the region of Judea, who actually see things differently, who want to cooperate with Israel, who see Israel as, as a, as a uh, very organic part of the Middle East, something that they accept and want to cooperate with, with for the sake of prosperity and maybe for the sake of our shared father, Abraham. And so, uh, for example, uh, at my, uh, the bat mitzvah of my daughter, which happened right before Corona, uh, one of the heads uh, of the local tribes, um, I asked him to shoot fireworks over the tomb of the fathers and mothers for the bat mitzvah that we were having there. And he did it with, 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 with pride and with joy and with cooperation and with respect for one another. Uh, and that was a moment where, like, it was like, even in Hebron, nobody had ever heard of this idea to reach out to the Arabs to be part of a, you know, Jewish uh, 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 ceremony, a Jewish simcha, as we say. Um, we'll get to, to more stuff about, about the future. But I think, I think in, if I could say it in a very short, very tight phrase, I would say, the vision for the future that I think uh, that, that I re represent is, is something that's actually uh, a lot of people want to make it complex. A lot of people want to say things like, well, you don't understand. But I prefer that the things are actually simple to understand. And I think that Israel is an ethnic national state of the Jewish people. And I think that ethnic national states are beautiful things from Iceland to Poland to Hungary to Japan. Ethnic national states is actually, I think, the backbone of a um, uh, of a world of a, of a peaceful global regime, and I believe that an ethnic national Jewish state, surrounded by strong ethnic national Arab states, working together in cooperation, is the the simple vision for the future. I see a railroad continuing from Istanbul, going down through Damascus, Beirut, uh, up to northern Israel. Uh, up to Jerusalem, maybe Tel Aviv first, then Jerusalem, then down to Beersheba, then to Gaza, and from Gaza to Cairo, and then Alexandria, and the other way going to Amman, and then out through the, the Arabian Desert, through Riyadh, uh, and hitting finally the Gulf, and, and this whole region being united, but not united because we're all uh, in some kind of massive uber state uh, that we've erased our borders and identities. No, because we respect one another as tribal peoples on a land, uh, I think that a, a, a Semitic Israel, a Jew, strong Jewish Semitic Israel surrounded by strong Arab countries. That's really the vision for the future in cooperation, working together. Uh, and, and I think that we're moving ahead towards that. We've seen a great leap towards that through what's called the Abraham Accords. And I'm pushing for the Abraham Accords to become an Abrahamic alliance uh, of countries 
that are like-minded, that are related genetically, ethnically, linguistically, religiously in our region, but without erasing each other's identities, respecting our borders and identities. And I think that's really the way to strive for a vision for the future. But that vision, if I would stop there, would be very, very uh, superficial because the real vision is having a temple in Jerusalem, a temple in Jerusalem, uh, which is going to be a house of prayer for all nations and that the world will be lit up through a closer face-to-face with God. And I think really on top of all the other great things that Israel is doing, that's its real deep mission. And I think that we're indeed heading in that direction. Thank you, Yishai. Yehuda, the floor is yours. As I was saying, I came here to really correct an injustice in my mind, the fact that my ancestors had been forcibly expelled from this land nearly 2,000 years earlier. As I said, I was born and raised in New York City, the first person in my family to be born in the United States, um, and the last, you know, re- the last generation. You know, my sister and I both made Aliyah, we're here now, and uh, and all of our children, and all of our grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren will be born here in our, in our people's country. Um, I know Yishai almost 20 years. Uh, I didn't come here to argue. I don't think of Yishai came here to argue either. Uh, the truth is, if we were in a head-on debate, I think Ravisha would probably throw me a serious beating. He's out there arguing with people on Twitter and forums like this all the time. He's a lawyer by training. Uh, you know, he's a seasoned fighter, probably in his prime right now. I'm honestly not as argumentative as I once was. You know, especially back when Ravisha and I spent a lot more time together, I was probably a lot more argumentative and used to love getting into these debates. Uh, these days, I really don't see that model as the most productive use of our time. Um, I'm much more interested in the conversation where we can give our attention, uh, when we, where we can give our attention to some ideas that I consider to be very important. And I think based on what Babisha just said, I think he also considers a lot of his ideas as very important. And I'm hoping to really use this as an opportunity to explore some of these ideas together. Um, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people who saw that this event was taking place you know, depending on who they were or, or their proximity to me or to Rabbi Ishai, um, some really thought that this was just going to be an echo chamber, like two guys who more or less come from the same perspective, having a conversation together with Yudar. Um, and some people were just like, wow, you guys, are, you got to beat him. You know, so really depending on, on who uh, had seen it. And I think that uh, what, what the way I would explain the similarities or differences between Avisha and I is that we very much share an identity and maybe even an ideological framework that we have radically different politics. And what I mean by that is, or, or these things that I consider to be identity. You know, when I talk about my connection to this land, that's my identity. When I speak about, um, you know, when I talk about my, my understanding of my people's story, my understanding of Jewish history, I think Ravisha and I share that. That's our identity. Our connection to this land, especially the Central Mountain region, the Judea Samaria regions, uh, I think that Ravisha and I share that. Uh, the understanding that the Jewish people coming back to life, coming back to our land, coming back to independence after thousands of years of homelessness and powerlessness, uh, the meaning that we ascribe to that, I think we share that. But for me, that's not politics. For me, that's my identity. That's not something I can turn on or off or change. That's just who I am. That's just my starting point. Uh, that's just where I'm coming from. 
And uh, in terms of where this is meant to go, you know, Ravisha mentioned uh, the temple. And I, oh, and, and one other thing I think that we share, which is very important, is that I think both of us are people who, when we pick up a siddur and uh, say the words in the siddur, those are actually the things we want to speak. Those are actually the things that we experience ourselves working towards, between Shafrit and Mincha, between Minchan and that these are actually the ideals and the values and the aspirations that really uh, drive us in life. And I think that's the intention. Uh, I think that's what our sages meant to do when they when they created this exercise that we call Tzvilat. A lot of people don't know that Rabban Gamliel uh, II, who actually kind of concretized what we call the Amidah, the, the central Tzvilat of our people, he was the son of an anti-Roman freedom fighter, uh, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, and he basically created this exercise for us, or concretized it anyway, it had already been loosely around, uh, in order to give us uh, a means, uh, something that we can do to remind ourselves what our soul and what our people really want, to connect our conscious will to the will of our people going back thousands of years, and I think that uh, that exercise has been effective both on Yishai and on myself. I think we're both people who are very much driven by that. Um, but the, where we differ maybe is how we relate to contemporary issues and some of the challenges confronting our people in order to achieve all of the things that we say on the Amida, all of the things that really drive us. So, for example, you know, Yishai brought up this, the, this idea of the temple and it made me think of three kings in our history. There are really only three kings in our entire history who, had, who, who led the entire unified children of Israel, all 12 tribes, Shaul, David, and Shlomo. And I think that looking at Shaul, David, and Shlomo gives us a, a good um, understanding of maybe where the state of Israel is and where it can go. Uh, I very much look at Shaul as a Zionist, uh, as an expression of Mashiach ben Yosef, somebody who's concerned with the material well-being of the Jewish people, of the children of Israel, of the Hebrews, um, somebody who was focused on security, uniting the people in the name of security, prosperity, being a strong nation. That was Zionism. Um, then you have David, someone who was also, you know, very talented when it came to security, but also was looking towards a spiritual revival actually wanted to give the people of Israel um, the values that are meant to drive us and yearned very much to build the Beit HaMikdash. And, uh, but he couldn't do it. And I, I see David very much as representing the national religious camp today. You know, those who actually are driven by the values of our people and are still kind of living off or uh, springboarding off of the success of the Zionists. But then you have this third stage, you have Shlomo, the universalist, or what I'd call the Hebrew universalist, who is able to finally build the Vikramadash, because Shlomo wasn't just thinking about his people's narrow interests. Shlomo was thinking about the world that we want to see. And I think that ultimately, if we want to move forward, we need to get off of defense, and we need to get onto offense. Meaning, we need to think about what our revolution is headed towards. What do we have to say about issues impacting the rest of the world, including the Palestinians in Iran? But even the fact that, uh, you know, statistics I saw recently 
uh, tell me that there are the 68 most wealthy people in the world together own more wealth, possess more wealth than, than the um, lowest half of the global population. Meaning if there's a population of roughly 7.8 billion people in the world today, almost 4 billion people together, the bottom 4 billion people have less wealth than the 68 richest people in the world. Meaning, what do we think about that? What do we think about a system that actually perpetuates such inequality? What do we think about, you know, imperialist wars around the world? What do we think about uh, indigenous issues, you know, in Turtle Island and elsewhere? Like, we have to have something to say to the world about issues beyond our own narrow interests. Uh, ultimately, we have to have a vision for what the world is supposed to look like. Every time that we've had power in history, we've actually influenced the world in a very, very positive way. Now we've come back to life after 2,000 years of powerlessness. We're used to a situation of powerlessness, and I think we've become uncomfortable with power. Now that we have power again, some of us want to uh, use power all the time to assert our rights and assert our interests, and some of us are afraid to touch it and don't want power and just want to drop it. We need to be comfortable with power in order to get off of defense and get onto offense Think about what the world, not just what our country, what the world is supposed to look like and the role that Israel is meant to play, you know, in helping the world to get there. And uh, so, you know, when Rav Yishai spoke, there were a lot of things he said that I identify with, but also things he said that I felt we really need to move past, like this idea of kind of European ethnic nationalism. I don't think that, I, I don't think that um, those constructs are really helpful to us at this point. I think that Zionism as a movement that had the challenge of bringing a dead nation back to life, something that's really unheard of in history, did use a lot of European tools, did use a lot of colonial tools in order to bring our people back to life. But now that Zionism succeeded, I would say that Zionism succeeded uh, roughly 54 years ago. Now that we're already over half a century after the victory of Zionism, we need to create a new Jewish liberation movement that can transition us into more of a Shlomo period where we can play a major role on the world stage and help all of humanity get to a better reality. Thanks, Yehuda. Yisha, anything you want to follow up with that? or Sure, sure. Um, great stuff. Very interesting. Um, with regarding to the question of the word Zionism, uh, you know, when I lived in New York City, I lived in a, in a street, it was called 189th Street, on the corner of 189th and Amsterdam. Uh, when I moved to, to Israel, I lived uh, on a street uh, close to where Yehuda lives now, and it just didn't even have a name back then. Uh, but then I moved to Jerusalem, I, I lived on a street called Derech Yericho, uh, the way of Jericho. And Jericho is where Joshua came in uh, to the land of Israel from Jericho. He brought in the Jewish people after the Egyptian exile and slavery. He came in through Jericho. So the street was named for that because it actually led all the way down to Jericho in the end. Today I live on a street called Shivat Zion, the return to Zion. And I, I've, I've, because I deal with all kinds of peoples, if they are liberal-minded Jews, if they're Europeans, if they're many ultra-Orthodox Jews, so the word Zionism is a polarizing word. I, I myself still like it because I, I just... I like the word Zion, and to me, it's the ingathering of the exiles. We just learned about it in the uh, Daf Yomi on uh, on page uh, eighty-seven B of uh, 
uh, of the Talmud Psachim that that the the ingathering of the exiles is really a humongous thing, and it's like it's it's as though God created the world anew when the Jewish people returned to the land of Israel. And today I live on the street called Shivat Zion, which means the return to Zion. We are in the process of the return to Zion. I have found that most people would agree to that word. If, if the word Zionism is is the type of ism that people are uncomfortable with, then then the return to Zion is the time that we're living in. Now, with regarding to what Rabbi Huda said about about uh, having a greater role, you know, I think I think those I think it's a beautiful idea. I'm not sure about about what impact we're going to have on world economics, but I'm actually interested in hearing about that. Uh, but I would say that it might be a little bit early to say that we've completed the so-called Zionist project, and, I, and I'll explain what I mean. When I go to the army. Uh, to to reserve duty, I ask. I have a little test that I run. I I go. Can you remind me who the wife of Isaac was in the Bible, in the Book of Genesis? And I, I, I you'd be shocked to believe that about eighty percent of awesome paratroopers, officers, guys who are married with kids and who take time to serve in the army, they don't know the answer. They don't know the answer of basic like the basics of Judaism. So I think to myself. We are, we are really far yet from actually doing what Herzl said that Zionism was really going to be all about, which is he said, first, it's a return to Judaism. I find that my beloved Israeli brothers and sisters are just not up on it. They don't know exactly what Judaism is. They, they have a very bare bones understanding. And sometimes nationalism has replaced a sense of Judaism where I think that if I use uh, Rabbi Yehuda's model of, of David and Saul, I would say the, the, the first stage of, of the return to Zion uh, was the building of the Jewish body or rebuilding the Jewish body or embodying the Jewish people in a land, in a country, etc. But, but the second stage, which is the Davidic stage, which is to fill the country, uh, the, the peoplehood, with knowledge of our of our tales of our narrative of our history and of a spiritual connection to god that's very far away from being completed very far away we might be in the right trajectory but we are unbelievably far away i also purchased a um I, my wife said absolutely no cable in the house so but i said but we still need to watch israeli news i told her it's it's critical that our kids see the other israel the real israel and so we got this uh, type of antenna thing, and it gives you like five channels, mostly news. And you watch these news channels, and you're like, this Israel is not the Israel, not yet the Israel of the Bible. It's got that potential, but people are just not connected. And I don't only mean like fulfilling commandments. I mean even Hanukkah. Like to me, Hanukkah is such a great holiday. It's, it's, it's connected to everything, everything from, from, from our rights to our land and our nationalism to our cultural uh, independence. Uh, and, and fight against uh, external, both oppression and, and also uh, and also cultural incursion. Uh, and yet Hanukkah is this like, you know, it's kind of like this, we eat a donut. If, if anything, we've lost Hanukkah to the Hellenists in the sense that like the, the whole consciousness of what Hanukkah is is a very low consciousness. And uh, my wife and I are always thinking about how to bring Hanukkah to the people if we could only get them to like celebrate uh, uh, it the way it's supposed to be celebrated for a week. They'll feel the light of Jerusalem. They'll feel the the the, the power of in, of Jewish independence and the the yearning to return to our authentic culture. So, like, okay, like talking about world economics and and economic disparity is 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 good. And I'm not gonna put a, be a stumbling block in front of that. But I just don't think we're there yet. You know, I don't think we're there yet. Moreover, if we would fulfill our mission as a regional uh, security 
provider, then we would help people like the Iranian people, one of the most oppressed groups in our whole region. I mean, does anybody even remember that 2,000 people uh, were, were shot at while protesting? Young people were protesting for freedom in the streets of Tehran, and it was under the Obama administration. Nobody even gave a damn about these people. And, and you have, what about, what about the Lebanese people? Palestinians living, living in Lebanon, Lebanese regular people who are under the thumb of Hezbollah. I mean, these people are yearning for n- normality, normalcy, and freedom, and we have an interest in 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 uh, in diffusing and weakening the people who oppress them for our own security needs. So I would say, yeah, the big picture of, of fixing world economics, cool, I get it, and that's a very Jewish uh, kind of uh, 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 impulse. But I think that if we first, at least, what I'm concerned with. Let's put it that way. I'm not even going to use the word we. I could say I am concerned with bringing the Tanakh and the Torah and the Bible to the Jewish people in the land of Israel, uh, holding on to our land from all kinds of folks that want to uh, uh, take it away and replace us here with a replacement narrative that we're not the uh, uh, indigenous people of this land, that we don't have a history here, and to push back on local tyrants. I think if we got that done, uh, in, in my lifetime, I think we would have made a great accomplishment and move forward. And maybe only then we could start tackling the greater questions of, of global inequality. Clearly, you know, those among us who don't yet have the same national consciousness or deep sense of Jewish identity as Alicia and I, there's a value to educate those people. I happen to be very optimistic. I mean, even if you look at the different parties running in the current elections to the Knesset, and you don't look at how they're polling, although there's reasons to be optimistic about how the polls are, are uh, shaping up, but I think even if you look at uh, each party leader and you ask, how many children does this party leader have? How many children does Ari Derry have? How many children does uh, Nerov Mahali have? How many children does Nitzan Horowitz have? How many children does Zabitzal Smotrich have? You, you know, you, you see the country's moving in a specific direction, okay? Uh, and uh, and I think that as we progress, meaning as Israel moves forward, the, the atmosphere in the country, the education level in the country, the identity of the country is moving, I think, towards us, meaning towards the way we see Jewish history, the way we see Jewish identity, the way we see purpose. That's coming towards us, and I think that's a positive thing. But I think our obligation, those of us who are already uh, maybe a little bit of a vanguard and have already gotten there, I think we need to think about how all of our achievements can be used as a vehicle, as a tool to achieve the mission of our people. Meaning, the way I understand the mission of the children of Israel in history is that we are meant to um, bring all of humanity to the awareness that we're all characters in a really great story that has an author and that each one of us as characters is actually being played by an actor that's really just an expression of that author and that we're all unified, meaning that we're all really one, that all of humanity is part of one organic whole. And Israel came back to life after 2,000 years in order to bring all of humankind to that awareness. And I want, you know, those of us, I'm not talking about Bibi Netanyahu, and I'm not talking about uh, Benny Gantz, or I'm, I'm not talking about people who are in positions of control today, but those of us who have a vision for what this country is supposed to be and have been living that vision need to think about 
how we can turn our state and how we can influence political figures, etc. You know, the the truth is the only party I really identify with in this election is the uh, Levi Yudi party, the party of Eli Yosef, that actually wants Jewish values to be expressed in the policies and institutions of the state. Like, meaning, how can this state that we've achieved and how can all the victories of Zionism be used in order to fulfill the historic mission of the children of Israel? Okay, so just want to, um, I know that because Yishai and I come from a very similar uh, background and we have a similar conception of things and we're kind of part of the same camp within Israeli society, uh, there might be a lot of internal language. So I just, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about already, you know, mentioning uh, ideas of uh, Shaul Melech, the King Shaul, or Mashiach Ben Yosef, you know, there's this idea that uh, in our in our uh, ancient writings, there's two Mashiachs, two Messiahs. There's Mashiach Ben Yosef and the Mashiach Ben David. And the Mashiach Ben Yosef is how, at least I and my teachers, understand Zionism. That it's the material rebuilding of the Jewish people, the body, the state, the army, the economy, etc. And the Mashiach Ben David is when you fill that with content, when you actually give it direction. So, I agree with Rabbi Shai. The whole nation isn't there yet. Not all of Am Yisrael is ready to think about, you know, direction and how to use this. But those of us who are should. And we should be using our energies and our creativity, our talents, uh, and our time to be dedicating ourselves to this question of what is this for? How are we going to use it to make the world better? To fix the world through Mahut Yisrael. Like, how is this going to make the world better than it was before we came back to life? And I think that, you know, one of the things I see Rabbi Shai doing sometimes, you know, I think he mentioned earlier Japan and uh, I think Iceland and, and talking about ethnic nationalisms. I'm really not interested in looking in trying to find, you know, the nation state that happens to have like a legitimate way of giving one group of people more rights than another group of people. I'm interested in creating new models here you know, new models of organizing society that can give people rights and inclusion in a way that's true to our identity, yet actually presents a new model to the world that actually can be um, shown uh, as more uh, just than the Western models of minority rights, you know, even according to their own yardsticks. That we, you know, we're here in a laboratory. That we came back to our country as a laboratory where we can take our values and our halachot and every, you know, everything we've been carrying around with us for thousands of years and everything that we've been passing down from generation to generation. Now we've come back to life. You know, um, when we were powerless, when we were in the diaspora, you know, we were able to share little things with the world. You know, Marx and Einstein and Freud were able to contribute to human development, but that's really just, in my opinion, the clearing of the throat compared to what Israel has to say now that we're actually back in our land and independent. And that's the conversation I think we need to be having. Like, what is the ideal role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society? What are our obligations to the non-Jew in our society? Uh, should the state of Israel, should our weapons companies be arming human rights abusers or not arming human rights abusers? You know, next year, as Ravi Shai knows, is the Shemitah year. You know, is this going to just be about uh, what vegetables we do or don't buy or uh, what fruits we do or don't buy? Or are we going to start having discussions about the socioeconomic 
implications of Shemitah and whether or not that should be implemented on a national level. You know, and and for a lot of these things, I acknowledge, you know, these aren't just discussions that Ravisha and I can have. These are discussions that a lot of great minds need to really come together and uh, and, and not just look at the um, the way that these things were implemented thousands of years ago, last time we had power, but actually think about the values and ideals that are expressed by these uh, institutions and policies and all of the advancements that humanity has made technologically, medically, etc. since we've had power last. I mean, that's one of our disadvantages. Last time we have real examples to show of what Jewish independence looks like or what a Jewish state looks like. The world was a very different place. So now that we're back on the stage of history, thousands of years later, with all of the innovations and advancements that have taken place on the world stage, we have to think about the values that were expressed by those institutions and how those same values can be expressed through new policies uh, that reflect our identity and our, you know, and our aspirations for what this world can look like in the modern age. Yishai, before you respond, I just want to kind of provide what I what I think might be a difference in how you view things and, and feel free to respond to this as well on, on your next go. So Isha, it seems like, you know, you would like for Jews to have a stronger connection to Judaism, the, the religious aspects of, of Judaism. And it seems like Yehuda agrees with that, but for him, it's deeper. He wants a, a, a restructuring of the country, both politically and economically um, and culturally. What, uh, Yehuda, is it right? Am I getting your position right on this? That you're really looking for a restructuring of the country to kind of get rid of the the Western ideals and values, at least the ones you disagree with, and kind of bring it more back to our traditional Jewish roots. Well, well, I didn't say that. But what I would say is, you know, this Shabbat we're reading Parsha Truma, and this deals with the construction of the Mishkan, and a lot of the Mishkan, the Tabernacle that Israel built uh, after the revelation at Har Sinai was built with gold that we took out of the land of Egypt. Now we'll see in a couple of weeks that a lot of that gold we took out of the land of Egypt also went towards the golden calf. Meaning gold in our Torah is actually not really a metaphor for material wealth. That's usually silver in our Torah. Gold is most often used as a metaphor for culture and values. We took gold out of Egypt and some of that gold, um, some of that gold went to the Mishkan, which is an expression of our identity and conducive to our mission. And some of that gold went to the golden calf, which was obviously a betrayal of our identity and a betrayal of our mission to a certain extent. Now, whenever we come back from the diaspora, we come back with gold. You know, both Ravisha and I came from the United States. Uh, other people in Israeli society come from other parts of the world. And we all came back with gold. And we have to sift that goal to see what actually is conducive and what is not. You know, most nations, when they achieve their liberation, they have what's called a post-colonial experience. They have a post-colonial conversation where they actually think about what is our identity? What happened to us? You know, what was done to us? How are we now going to create the type of society that expresses our identity and its policies and institutions? Israel has never had that conversation partially because of security threats and, and different insecurities and trauma that we just didn't want to deal with, but we have to deal with it. And if we haven't dealt with it yet, we have to deal with it now. And I think that's what you're alluding to, Adar, when you talk about the Western features of Israeli society. I think that Israel, uh, we do have a Westernized ruling class, and we do have a certain class of people that want to be part of the West, uh, yet at the same time, um, 
And yet at the same time, Israel is a very Semitic country and the Jewish people are a very Semitic people. And we have to actually ask ourselves, like, what did we come back for? Like, what is our society supposed to look like? What values, what identity is supposed to be expressed to the policies and institutions of this state? We haven't had that conversation yet. And I think we have to have it now. I think Israeli society, in order to move forward, needs to be able to have a real conversation where we address our own trauma, because we have lots of trauma, especially Ashkenazim. We have 2,000 years of trauma that we need to unpack and get, and get straight from in order for us to be able to move forward in a healthy way. Like I said before, from defense to offense. Thanks, Yehuda. Yisha, does that, does that resonate with you or is that, that part of it less, less important? Unpack there. So uh, I'll, just, I'll just kind of focus on a few different points. First thing, just, just to clear something up. I think that calling Israeli ethnic nationalism a byproduct of Europeanism, uh, European nationalism, is a tad unfair because th the real truth is, is that European nationalism is a byproduct of people looking back into the Bible and, and looking back all the way to King David and being like, oh, uh, an, an ethnic tribe got together, these, these 12 tribes got together on their land, they shared a language, a calendar, a coinage, uh, a history, uh, a culture, a religion, and they're on their land, they're tied into their land, and there's nothing more beautiful than a people on their land uh, doing their cultural thing. And if, and if you look back into the American writings, like they saw themselves as learning a lot uh, from the Jewish experience, from the ancient Jewish experience. So in many ways, you know, you ever like talk to people and you say something about Mashiach or Messiah and they say to you, oh, that's a Christian concept. You're like, dude, Christianity picked that up from Judaism or, or I don't know, uh, uh, you know, Ramadan is like a fasting month. Where do you get that? Oh, you got it from Judaism, the idea of fasting and cleansing yourself. So like we're the Papa and Mama, our, our historical experience is where that comes from. And it, and it went a long circle, long cycle, and it got back to us. I don't think there's anything overly Western about King David uh, having a kingdom in this land and us, and us yearning for our third commonwealth in this land. So that's just one, one perspective on that. Now, with regard to, to what Yehuda is saying, I think, it, I think it's all, again, like I said before, I think it's all beautiful stuff, but I don't always know personally what is the great restructuring that has to happen. And I'm sometimes suspicious of it because I don't know if mankind always knows what that great restructuring is supposed to be. Uh, my parents came from, from a world of communism where really the Jews uh, in the Soviet Union were one of the, the main peoples behind the restructuring of that society. Now, my mom... Uh, and my father, Allah Shalom, never told me, you got to read some of that Marx stuff. It really worked out well for us. Most of the time they're like, no, this was a very destructive, freedom-eating idea, uh, and don't go there. So, so you know, huge restructuring can work, cannot work, I don't know. Um, what I do know is that there are steps to be taken, process steps to be taken, and those process steps, I believe, will lead us in the right direction. Let me, let me just give you like an example of not knowing. You know, I grew up, I was born here, as I said, in the mid-70s in Israel. And, and my parents were scientists. Um, did we know back then in the 70s and 80s that Israel was going to become this country, that technology was something that was so, such a driver of both the economics and the, the mentality of Israel today? Like, 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 Jews love science. From the Rambam and to the Ramban, they were great doctors. And the, the issue of science... Is, is something that, that, that calls to Jews. My, my mom always said to me, what is science? It's actually just studying, walking in the footsteps of God, 
finding out the secrets that he embedded into this world, finding out his knowledge. Now, since the Jewish people have started coming back to the land of Israel, which I like to put it at, at the mid-16th uh, century, the 1550s, from when the Arizal called the Jewish people, Arizal and, and the group of Kabbalists called the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. For the last 500 years, Jews have been coming back to the land of Israel. And the more we come back to the small corner in the Middle East, the more incredible knowledge has come into this world. And today, the Jewish people are some of the great perpetuators of that knowledge. I was on an airplane to San Francisco to do some fundraising for the Jewish community of Hebron, and I heard Israelis talking, because they were going out there to Silicon Valley, talking about high-tech stuff, and I saw how incredibly enmeshed they were in the ability to create technology that would serve the world. Now, I'm not one to say that that's our raison d'etre to send technology into the world. I'm not saying that. Uh, what I am saying is, you don't always know exactly what your role is going to be. You don't always know that that you are you're going to create something that's going to change the world uh, in, in a way that wasn't so expected. Um, I don't know exactly where Israel is going to change the world. Is it going to affect global economics? I really don't know. Is it going to create uh, affect global medicine? That's for sure. Um, is it going to uh, connect people more? Is it going to make life safer? Yeah, I think that Israel is really doing all that stuff. So I don't really know for sure how Israel is going to light up the world. But I do know certain process steps. And I'll give you an example. Like, I believe when the Torah tells me that one of the most important things that should happen is that the Jewish people should come up to Jerusalem three times a year. That's what the Torah tells me. It says it over and over again in different ways. It says, come up to Jerusalem three times a year and make sure that everybody comes in. So I'm thinking to myself, how do we use the modern state of Israel to facilitate this thing that God says, do this? He doesn't tell me how to restructure global economics. He says to me, bring the Jewish people three times a year in Jerusalem and nobody will covet your land and there'll be blessings in the land if you come to serve God three times a year in Jerusalem. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm always thinking about that. I'm thinking, imagine if we dropped airport taxes and fuel taxes and everything and said to El Al, during the three festivals, we want you to make flights cheap, not expensive. We want you to drop it to a $500 price point. Let's figure out a way how to do that to help you get more people into the land, not less by choking the price, driving it up to like $2,000 a ticket. Make it cheap so that every college kid, Jewish college kid in America might say, you know what, instead of going, going to Acapulco, I'm going to go to Yerushalayim and Tel Aviv for spring break. Okay, I, if, if I help the Jewish people come back to Jerusalem and uh, the book of, of Zechariah, tells us, towards the end of the book, tells us that the Gentiles will come on Sukkot. Help them. Help them come to serve the God of Israel in Jerusalem by making cheap hotels, cheap flights. By the way, how many tourists come a year to Israel? About four million. How many tourists come every single year to Turkey? Almost 52 million. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I've got ways, biblical ways to bring people to Jerusalem, to bring more tourists to Israel, help make things a little bit cheaper and, and not choke it in the kind of old Middle East style, but rather, you know, open the, the markets up and there'll be a blessing through that. More people will see the God of Israel. More people will come to Jerusalem and see the great light. There'll be good things. How exactly they're going to, what exact economic model the world needs, I don't know. But I do know that, that people need, need to, to come to Yerushalayim. So that's the way I'm thinking about it. I guess, I guess one of the ways that, you know, when I, when I was finishing college, I had to decide what my next degree was going to be. And I, and I decided to go to law school. And my main drive for going to law school, even though it was not my, like, uh, tendency to study law, my main drive was... How do we make things practical? 
how do we how do we use the mechanisms of law and state to make to make a great dream come true? How do I get enmeshed in this system and and make it holier and better and more more of God's vision? And so that's exactly what what I've been trying to do all these years is to make it more 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 practical, more on the ground. Uh, and and that's the process that I see happening. Um, and I think it's <laughs> I, I think it's a process of blessing. Uh, but the basic things of helping Jewish people know more about their heritage, and at the word you used the word religion uh, earlier, uh, Adar, the word religion isn't exactly the right word, because religion is um, it's kind of a cold word. What we're talking about is both identifying with our nas- national stories, with our with our with the foundational stories, uh, and it's also about spirituality. Imagine if Tel Aviv decided down the line that it would be the first city to keep the Shabbat because the people of Tel Aviv need a break from smoking, need a break from driving, need a break from the hustle and bustle, need to turn off their phones, go to the park and have like yoga, meditation, prayer, the, the, the prayer that, that, that Rabbi Yehuda is talking about. Imagine if that great lively city would actually shut down to, to recoup. The whole world would come to see this amazing city and it's, and it's like beautiful Sabbath keeping. I could just see the whole of Tel Aviv walking the streets, not smoking, coming back to spirituality, coming back to family, detoxing from, from digitality. Uh, I don't know if there's a word like that, but I made it up. Uh, and, and those are steps, concrete steps that I see in, in pushing that vision forward. Thank you, Yishai. Uh, Yehuda, I will give you an opportunity to respond, but we are closing in on an hour, so I wanna, I do wanna start addressing a new topic. Um, so I'm gonna propo- ask a question. If there's something you feel like you do need to respond to, go for it. Just include your answer in in this next for this next question. So, I, it, just to summarize, it, it really seems like Yehuda is, you know, focused has like a grandiose vision of of you know, what we could do, who we can be. And Yisha is more focused on more like pra- pragmatic steps forward. Now, I don't think this is even an area where common ground necessarily needs to be met because I think leaders, y- you need different types of leaders, some that are going to tell you what you could do today and some who are going to try to build you a vision for the future. And Yehuda, it's not for no reason that you have a magazine and a movement called Vision. It makes sense after hearing, you know, what, what we just heard. So, I, I do want us to start addressing what many would view to be the camel in the room. Um, you both agree that there, you, you're in agreement that you want the land to remain whole. From the river to the sea, it will be Israel. Yes. From the river to the sea, there happens to be around 40% of uh, another national identity that, that also have national aspirations, the Palestinian people. How do we address their rights and national aspiration in with, with keeping Israel whole. Is it okay if I begin by responding to what Abisha had already sure. said and kind of yeah, bring go for your question towards the end? Uh, first of all, I do want to acknowledge that uh, what Abisha said before about European nationalism actually being based on the ancient Hebrews is correct. Or at least my wife, who got her master's in the study of nationalism, tells me it is absolutely correct. But I do think that there is a danger in us using, you know, us taking the like um, uh, knockoff brand that was based on, even if it was based on us, us taking the knockoff brand and using it ourselves ultimately uh, results in us 
in us playing, it's not exactly ours. Okay, and I think it's true. Even I, I heard Vishay mention the word prayer before, which kind of like rubbed me the wrong way because I I was very careful to avoid that term prayer. I don't think we pray. We lehit palel. It's something very different. The Christian world prays, and uh, they do something different from what we do. Just like I don't think that the Western concept of God has much to do with yudke vavke, with the uh, what we consider the Creator. You know, I think that we need to be very careful not to utilize, and it's hard when we're using the English language, but not to utilize the appropriated um, aspects of our ancient identity that Western civilization has used. We need to be careful not to take those things, but actually to go back to the originals of what was actually ours when rebuilding our civilization. And I think that's very important. Uh, also, I uh, definitely have a lot of respect for Abishai's parents and their struggle against the Soviet regime. Uh, especially that regime's uh, suppression of the Jewish people at a certain point in time. Uh, I don't suggest recreating the Soviet Union. I do suggest looking at every revolution and every revolutionary experience in history and trying to understand what was right, trying to understand what was wrong, and figure out how we can do better, you know, in terms of us being able to move forward. So I just want that to be very clear. I also want to add something, you know, Ravish, I mentioned the Arizal and that there have been a few hundred years of the Jewish people coming back to the land of Israel. I, I think it's more than that. And there's a huge gap in a lot of our knowledge. You know, when we learn this history or when we understand this history, I think it needs to be understood that there were roughly two dozen Jewish liberation movements attempts to actually restore Jewish independence to this land before and after the Arizal meaning roughly every century, sometimes twice a century, there was a practical attempt to restore Jewish independence to Palestine. Zionism happens to be the movement that succeeded. So we remember that one, and sometimes we even use this word Zionism to anachronistically kind of uh, apply to all the liberation movements that came before it. But I think it's important that we understand the historical context, and we should understand our identity as a people that self-identified as refugees for centuries, passed on from generation to generation this idea that we're going to come back to our land, we're going to come back to independence. Every wedding, every Pesach Seder, every major experience a Jewish family had, whether in Morocco or Poland or Yemen or Canada, you know, and we we told ourselves we're coming back and many times we practically tried. And I think that part of our history needs to be on the table. I think people need to understand that this is not something that we forgot about for 2000 years, or it's not something that we relegated to spirituality or religion or whatever for 2000 years. This is something that we actually practically tried to restore many, many times and many times we failed and many times we died failing, but finally we did come back and we did liberate our land from British rule and we did raise a Hebrew flag over this land. Now, now, when we talk about our vision for the world, uh, I think it's correct. We do need to start local, and that maybe gets us into more your question, Adar, before we talk about restructuring the economies of the world. Um, maybe we should talk about the non-Jews in our society, the Palestinians who live in this land with us, or the asylum seekers from African countries, um, or, or the Jerusalem, or, or the Filipino workers who are exploited in our society. I think that before we even get into that conversation, though, there's something I want to make very clear. My 
approach, and I think the real Jewish approach to tochacha, to criticism, is introspection. And too often, when we're criticized either as individuals or as a people, we tend to become defensive instead of actually thinking about the criticism. But I really do believe that the healthiest and most authentically Jewish response to criticism really is introspection. We need to think about the criticisms that we're hearing. And I think we need to think, you know, just like that's true on a personal level, I think it's true on a national level. We need to think about everything that the Palestinians are saying, that their supporters are saying, that the BDS movement is saying, and ask ourselves, well, first of all, is this true? Second of all, um, if it's true, is it correct? Meaning, is this a, an expression or a betrayal of our identity that they're criticizing? And even if it's not true, we should ask ourselves, why are people seeing us this way? Are we behaving in such a way? Because there's also a concept of Mark Ein. Like, are we behaving in such a way that causes people to see us as something other than we're not? I've said many times that the Jews in Judea are not the Americans in Afghanistan or the French in Algeria. The problems arise when we begin to behave like the Americans in Afghanistan or the French in Algeria or uh, any other uh, example of uh, imperialism or settler colonialism. At the end of the day, Israel's military occupation of the West Bank and many of the colonial structures that exist in the West Bank and oppress the Palestinian population actually undermine the Jewish people's like very real natural connection to Judea and Samaria. And I think that our behavior, our policies, and I think those policies, you know, what Ravisha mentioned before about some of his friends in Miloim not knowing who the wife of our ancestor Yitzhak was, I think that's a symptom of what I'm talking about, just like the occupation's a symptom of what I'm talking about. Both are betrayals of our identity. Both result from us, um, from us adopting a Western paradigm. You know, before, earlier... Um, Ravisha mentioned Sipi Livni, and he called her a leftist. I, I don't know if you remember it, Dar, but Ravisha called Sipi Livni a leftist. And that caught my attention only because I think this is the only country in the world where somebody like Sipi Livni could be called a leftist. I don't know if anybody with her politics would be called a leftist anywhere else in the world. And I think it's a result of us using, like I said before, foreign frameworks that are inauthentic to us. This idea of left and right, this idea of religious and secular don't really fit our identity. I think when we talk about the divisions in Israeli society, we can say that uh, there are Israelis who are living Jewish history and who are relating to a lot of the contemporary challenges within the context of our historical experience and the wisdom of our prophets and sages and things our ancestors had to struggle with. And applying those lessons to modern times, those are people who are, I think, 100% fully living in Jewish history. And I think there are people who are completely living in Western civilization in 2021, and that's their uh, ideological paradigm. And I'm not, and, and I think, by the way, there's value to both. I think one is we can call Yehuda, and one we can call Yosef, right? And there's a value to Yehuda, and there's a value to Yosef. But ultimately, you know, if you look at almost any contentious issue in Israeli society today, it comes down to a, um, a conflict between Jewish nationalism and Western liberalism. 
almost, like almost every conflict in Israeli society is an expression of this friction between Jewish nationalism and Western liberalism. And I think ultimately what we need to do is transcend that friction or that ostensible friction with what I call Hebrew universalism. Because the problem, you know, I, I think one of the things that prevents a lot of the Israelis of Yosef, and by the way, some of the Yosef people have people, and some of them are actually Rosh Yeshiva. Like I think you can definitely meet, even in Gush Etzion, right, in Judea, you can meet Rosh Yeshiva, heads of Yeshivot, big Rabbanim with beards and kippot, who are 100% Yosef, who are living in the ideological paradigm of Western civilization in the modern age, right, and are turned off, and are turned off by, uh, and, and I know Yishai knows exactly what I'm talking about because he went to Yeshiva University and probably studied with many of these Rabbanim. And, and they're turned off or what they see as like an ugly Jewish nationalism. Because Jewish nationalism doesn't address the things that are important to those who are concerned with human rights and uh, and social justice, etc. And I think our Torah actually does. I think our identity actually does. I think our prophets and sages actually do have answers to these questions. And I think that that's part of the transition from narrow Jewish nationalism to Hebrew universalism. So... In terms of moving forward, I do want to talk about practical steps. I do think one of the major practical steps is just getting free, not just ideologically and culturally, but also militarily and, ec and economically from the United States to be an independent country that's not a vassal of the U.S. and doesn't behave or see itself or function as uh, an extension of U.S. power in the Semitic region. Uh, I think the post-colonial conversation that I spoke about earlier is a major practical step that we need to take now. But the third practical step, I think, relates directly to your question, Adar, and that's the question of Palestinians. Like, we need to be able to reconcile with the Palestinians. And I actually see Rav Yishai as the key to making that happen, because I think he's, in his essence, exactly the type of Jew who our neighbors should be meeting, who the Palestinians should be meeting. I think one of the problems is that until now, Israel's relationship with the Palestinians and with the Arab world has been monopolized by Yosef. And Yosef is great at many things, building economies, building armies, building a state. That was Zionism. But our face to our neighbors, our face to the Palestinians, our face to the rest of the Semitic region, shouldn't be Yosef. It should be Judah. And maybe sometimes even Shimon. And, and I think that Ravisha is exactly the type of Jew who the Palestinians should be meeting. Um, and I know that he does. And I've even had the merit to be connected to some of those engagements before. But one of my uh, critiques of the way in which those meetings often go down is I get the sense, you know, uh, I'll use, Yishai, I'll use your words. You often use the term narrative warfare. This idea that it's our narrative, the Jewish narrative, against the Palestinian narrative. And we have to win and they have to lose. Uh, or our narrative, our story has to win and their story has to lose. And I think that's counterproductive because at the end of the day, first of all, I think that their narrative is true. I think what they're saying is often historically true, or at least when they're talking about themselves. And I think what we're saying is true when we're talking about ourselves. I think we both get it wrong when we talk about the other. Right? You have, you know, we learn... Um, actually, Bofuk teaches in the Mamar Dat Elohim that we all live in our subjective perceptions of reality. The way we perceive reality impacts how we experience reality. That's one of the reasons we say, Baruch Ata Hashem all day. The more we say that the Kadosh Baruch Hu is abundantly present in our lives, the more we experience Him as abundantly present in our lives. 
but our perception impacts our experience also in politics, also in history. And I think that with the Palestinian stay they've experienced in this land over the last 100 years, 150 years, in their encounter with Zionism is very true. It's true that we came here, the Zionists came here using colonialist tools, using colonial methodology. It's true that there were a lot of misunderstandings and it's true that the British Empire, which ruled our land until we forced them to leave, were really, really good at dividing and ruling native populations. And they played on, played each one of us against the other. Doesn't mean that the Palestinians were wrong, doesn't mean that we were wrong, but we both made mistakes and we both have to account for those mistakes today. But we more than them only because we have power. Right now we're in a situation where we've both made mistakes, um, we've both suffered, uh, but we're ruling over them. We have power over them. We have control over them. That means the ball's in our court. That means it's up to us to really make the first move towards building trust and creating the type of reality that I think we ultimately both want to see, which is one country between the river and the sea, including Gaza, that can actually create a model of minority rights that makes us a light unto nations, that actually inspires the rest of the world and doesn't look at countries like Japan or Finland or anywhere else to say, hey, look, they, have, uh, they get away with uh, not giving rights to that group. Let's actually try to give rights. Let's actually try to grant inclusion and equality to the Palestinian people living under us in a way that works in a way that's an expression of our identity, in a way that allows them to express their identity and allows us to move forward together and build this country together. Thanks, Yehuda. share the floor is yours, Fred. Well, it's great stuff that Rav Yehuda said um, and, and, ins and inspiring in, in many ways uh, of uh, liberation of, of language and liberation of words and, and not to behave like a colonialist. And I, I, really, I really appreciate those thoughts. A, a few caveats. Our face as Israel has always been both to the east and the west. So the Torah will give us the story of Ishmael, which relates to the Arabs, that's to the east. And there was, uh, at the end of, uh, of Isaac's and Ishmael's life, the, actually at the very end of Abraham's life, they buried, Isaac and Ishmael both buried their uh, beloved shared father together in the tomb of the fathers and mothers. And there was, uh, our, our sages teach us that there was a reconciliation uh, that happened at that moment. And our prophets tell us, at the end of time, in the Messianic period, uh, there's going to be a, also a reconciliation between the Jewish people and the mount, mountain of Esav. Uh, what is that, Pasuk? Uh, why did I slip my mind? Uh, anyway, the verse will come back to me in a second. In any case, the, the, the verse there, the meaning of it is that in the Messianic times, we'll come back to another understanding, a better understanding with, with Esau. There's actually a verse all the way in the beginning of Genesis, which says, Yafet Elohim Yafet, Vishkon Shem, that God sees the beauty of Japheth, uh, and, but will dwell in the tents of, of the Semites, of, of Shem. And the rabbis say, uh, The beauties of, of, of Rome, of Japhet, will dwell within the house of the Hebrews, the house of the Semites. And there will be, again, a kind of bringing together of both West and Israel, and then beforehand East and Israel. And that's why God put us smack in the middle of East and West, right? He put us smack in the middle. Even our calendar system is 
lunar like the Muslims and solar like the Western world. Like we have a we have a mixture of these things, and we're we're these people that kind of represent everybody. I, and I one of the great disagreements that uh, Rav Yehuda and I have is he he has a he has a kind of um, uh, a, a sense that he wants to throw off America and they're you know uh, uh, they're making us into a puppet state. And I understand that. And I, I myself have written articles that Israel should be more independent of America and certainly not see itself as a puppet state. Uh, but on the other hand, the relationship with the West has always been there, always will be there. Let's remember even the very name of the Jewish high court, according to the tradition of the sages, Sanhedrin. It's a, it's a Roman word. It's a Roman word that we've adopted in order to call our Supreme Court filled with rabbis. It's a Roman word. What about our calendar? It's got names of Babylonian gods as our, as our, as our calendar. We remember these things. In some ways, in some weird ways, we're actually the people that keep ancient cultures alive. Weirdly, we bring the Romans with us. Weirdly, we bring the Babylonians with us in time. We're the only ones that remember they're good and they're bad and kind of keep their, their, their you know, we're the only ones who talk about Assyrians. Nobody else talks about Assyrians, but we're like, there was an Assyrian king and he did this and he did that. And the Bukhad, uh, we're talking about, um, uh, we're talking about Sancherev, of course. And so, so you have, you know, we have something about the Jewish people that faces both ways. And to kind of flop off America and say Ichsa and all of that, I just think that that's wrong. And I think it's a mistake because there's a lot of people there. Now, for example, uh, uh, Rav Yehuda didn't like the word prayer. I get what he's saying. It's a different type of thing. You know, and, and the, the word faith is not the word emunah. But that's true in all translations. You know, if you translate between English and Russian, the same problems happen. It's just they don't always work together. Translations mean different things in different languages. But our purpose is to try to find common ground with people that want to come closer. People want to come closer to the God of Abraham. Our job is to bring them closer. I agree with you, not through being a vassal state, but certainly through relationships. We've always had those relationships. We always will have those relationships. That's, re that's the real thing. Um, now, with regarding to, to the Palestinian narrative, let's, let's just be real for a second, okay? We're living now in the beginnings of the 21st century. The 20th century saw the greatest propagandists that ever lived use all their power to try to erase Israel and the Jewish people. So we're talking about the Nazis. And there, you know, uh, speaking of, of Joseph, there was another Joseph. His name was Joseph Goebbels. And he was a genius at, at, at creating a narrative that the Jewish people are some kind of vermin. It was, it was a, a, a kind of full-blown blood libel of, on, on the national level and maybe even international level. He got so many countries and peoples to get into that mode of, of destroying the vermin that is the Jewish people. And so that was, a, that was a one hell of a piece of propaganda to turn, the, turn half of the world against the Jewish people, you know, the Romanians, the Estonians, and so many other people were, did unspeakable things uh, to, to the Jewish people through this propaganda. Then people like my family fell under the prison of the Soviet Union. And they, they, they fought against religion, against God. Stalin uh, wanted to, 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 to burn away every last vestige of Judaism and, 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 and called religion, you know, the opiate of the masses, that's uh, Marxism, but, but, but made that come into, into play. And this was a huge propaganda machine to try to erase Jewish people's identity. And after that came uh, the, the, the jihadist contingent, uh, people like Haji Amin al-Husseini, who was a proto-Nazi in 1929 and stirred up a, a horrible riot against the Jewish people in the land of Israel and 
67 Jews were murdered in Hebron. It was all the same. It was Nazism. It was it was it was jihadism because it wasn't just about oh these people are invading us. It was about the fact that we're religiously uh, second rate. It's called uh, it's called Din el Batel in Arabic, which means that jihadism sees the Jewish people as a as a forgotten religion that's been superseded, and therefore if they become too uppity, you got to crush them. And this was taught to millions and millions of people. Just look at the videos. Uh, of speeches by people like Nasser and, and throngs of tens of thousands of people calling for the death of Israel. Palestinianism is the is the is the is the child of Hajjamin al Husseini and Yasser Arafat. These are people who we know worked with the, with Soviet KGB agents to develop uh, an alternative narrative trying to replace the Jewish people. And Yasser Arafat was the one that said that the war for Palestine will be won in the bedrooms. We have to outpopulate them. And we know from books like From Time Immemorial that the majority of Palestinians that are here today came in the 1850s and, and onward. And we know that they were they were small, you know, groups of, of many little cities. Nothing like we have the, the great, you know, refugee status of today. And we know we know that the Palestinian Authority and Hamas teaches children day in and day out to hate Israel. I've speaking speaking to many Arabs, ones that you know, ones that are today anti the Palestinian Authority or just ones that tell me the way it is honestly, and they say to me, they teach us hate with our mother's milk. It's in our television, it's in our textbooks. I see it, I see it all the time, and people show it to me what it really looks like. So to to then willy-nilly say, well, what it's really about is that the Jewish people are, are occupying uh, their land and they see it, their self, the way that they uh, perceive these things as an occupation is such an erasure of what really is going on around here, which is a wholesale indoctrination against us. And I'm talking like a Russian Jew. And maybe that's a big part of it because, like, I really like in in my house education. I'm a Russian Jew and not an American Jew. I, I speak English because I came to America later on, but I don't I don't perceive ways like when I hear Rav Yehuda speaking, I hear more of an American attitude, ironically, than a Russian attitude. Our Russian attitude is this is our tribal land. People are trying to take it over. They use all kinds of fancy words like human rights and all this kind of stuff, but they lie all the time. People like uh, uh, Isa Amru in Hebron, he is a, he's a bold-faced liar. He talks about apartheid in Hebron, in the Jewish section of Hebron, where, where Arabs can't walk in certain parts, but he doesn't mention that Jews are not even allowed in the ethnically cleansed areas of Hebron under the Palestinian Authority, which they say without, without, any, without mixing words, they say they want to keep it Judenrein, they want to keep it clear of Jews. He doesn't talk about the real apartheid in the region. So yeah, I see some of these uh, efforts to besmirch us to tell us that we're to use the word occupation what is the word occupation it doesn't mean that there's a military there it means that we're not from here and so i'm always amazed that Rav Yehuda is willing to use this word occupation where that word is the word of the enemies that try to say we're not from here we're foreigners we're thieves we're, we're abusers now could our army uh, behave better uh, could, should it be a more civil administration there should there be no walls and all that's absolutely I, I agree with that if we would crush jihadism which is the movement to try to, to destroy Israel and suppress other peoples sure there would be there would be much more peace if Israel would be clear about what are the laws for Gentiles non-jews other tribes to live in our land to be allied with us to respect our our law like for example the Druze and then they would receive rights after fulfilling their obligations absolutely i'm all for that i'm not racist against the arabs god forbid i i respect them very much and understand that this is their region in fact i think that we should behave like them 
and 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 the way that Rav Yehuda is speaking, that's to me sounds like a kind of colonialism. Where do you, where where in the Arab world do you accept the other people's narrative and 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 share the narrative and figure out a way for everybody to live all together? No, this is our tribal land, and we have to push back on all kinds of fancy efforts to to delegitimize our narrative and our history and our story. That, does that mean that no Arabs deserve rights here? Of course they deserve rights. Certainly civil rights and personal rights and, 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 and freedoms of speech, which, which actually Israel is the only guarantor of in this whole region. But if somebody tells me that they have national rights to this land, I say, hell no. This, if somebody says to me that I, he also has a right for national self-determination in this land, I say, hell no. And I think that speaking in clarity is where health comes in. And I think to, to, to forget what what where we're coming from i i have like an obsession where i'm i'm constantly interested in world war ii and the holocaust and the propaganda and all the things that were that were pulled on us let's not go down there let's not you know the the 11th commandment in this region is like don't be a sucker uh I think it's, by the way, the Pasuk is, uh, it came back to me, uh, that, that there will be a, um, a detente yeah. between Esau and, and Israel. What's that? A judgment of Western civilization. Fine, a judgment, but also the rabbis say a, a, a reconciliation, though, because they will accept our judgment. I, I hear what you're saying, but, there, but to lop off the West and say, we're not talking to you, I just, I don't agree with that. And I just don't think that that's the trajectory of history in any case. Uh, my final word is, uh, I want to just bring it down to one realpolitik point, which I want to credit to my good friend Alex Trayman, who said something to me that, that really uh, was very interesting to me. He said, uh, President Trump, who I think was truly pro-Israel in his heart, um, he, in his kind of last act as president, actually caused us to pivot more to the East, sensing that our relationship with America and, and the so-called West uh, was becoming degraded, was going to go back to more like Obamaism, and kind of in his last act, passed the ball to us and said, look to the East, make make regional partnerships. I- I'm signing off here, and I don't think America is going to be your friend as much. And I know people don't like to hear that, but I think that, that Alex's point was is that a true pro-Israel person said to the, said to the Jewish people, Make more alliances with the East. Make more alliances with your Arab cousins. That's what, that's where you need to go right now. And I think that that is where we're going. Uh, and I certainly agree with with Yehuda that we should, Rav Yehuda that we should not be a puppet state. Uh, and and I think that that is what's happening now with more formidable military strength and hopefully leading towards spiritual strength as well. Thank you, Yehuda. All you. We're gonna uh, just, just real quick. You'll you'll have an opportunity to respond, and then we're gonna do final thoughts, and then we're gonna move it over to the after party in uh, Discord. I know that the community, I, I see them in chat. They really want to get in on the questions and on the dialogue. So we're gonna start wrapping up. Okay. Um, first of all, I think Ravishe brought up some interesting points. First of all, regarding our calendar, it's true that our calendar is a combination. Uh, lunar and solar, but we have to keep in mind that it's primarily lunar with some solar adjustments. You know, at the end of the day, we want to be connected to the entire world, including the West. I don't disagree, but we need to know who we are first. And again, as I don't think we're in disagreement, not as a vessel. You know, we can't have a real relationship with the West when we think in terms of some kind of mythic Judeo-Christian civilization. There's no Judeo-Christian civilization. There is a Christian civilization which appropriated our civilization 
and tried to replace us for many, many centuries. And there's our civilization, which is coming back to life, and in many ways might actually eclipse them. You know, you mentioned the wife of our ancestor, Yitzhak. Her name was Rivka, and she had Nivoah, and Nivoah was that the children of Yitzhak, the Western civilization, and the children of Israel can't both simultaneously be uh, dominant on the world stage. And I think with the rebirth of the children of Israel, we see an eclipse of the West uh, and a weaning of Christianity and, and maybe other features of that civilization as we progress as we advance. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of our history and the Palestinian history, I, I really see what just happened, uh, a lot of what Bishai just said, as really the, you know, that defensiveness and that kind of defensive nationalism that I spoke about earlier. I don't want to get into the question over whether or not a book like From Time Immemorial should be taken seriously. But I think that, you know, we need to be able to look at, not, dis not dismiss the criticisms, not say it's all propaganda, but to understand that there were many people living here. It might be true that, uh, you know, 120 years ago, there were Arabs living in Jaffa, and in Akko, and in Beersheba, and in Tzvat, and in Hebron, and in, uh, you know, and, and in Shechem, and in other parts of the country. And maybe there was nothing that really united those communities that they didn't also share in common with Arabs living in Cairo, or Baghdad, or Damascus. But I would say certainly in the last hundred years, there have been shared experiences that all those communities had that unified them and turned them into Palestinians, made them Palestinians. And that is their experience with Zionism. That's their experience with what they experienced as a bunch of people coming from Europe, using tools of colonialism, in many ways collaborating with the British Empire, and completely disrupting their civilization, their way of life. It doesn't mean that we intended to do it. Uh, I think in many ways we were just insensitive. And in many ways they were insensitive back. And then violence started breaking out and the British used that. And the British kept hitting us against each other. And the only group I know of that actually tried to prevent the British from hitting us against each other was the Lehi, the, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, that actually did have Palestinian members and actually did reach out to the country's Arab population, even... Uh, on the eve of the 1948 war and tried to pre prevent a Jewish-Arab conflict and keep the Semitic peoples unified against British imperialism. But for the most part, we fell into the trap. The Zionist leaders fell into the trap. The Arab leaders fell into the trap. And we're still in the trap. We're still in the trap. And, and that's, I guess, kind of what I mean. We need to understand if, if we're going to have a healthy relationship with Palestinians, with the rest of the Semitic region, with the Western world, with Europe, with the United States, with anybody. We need to understand how the game works. We need to understand how imperialism works. We need to understand the ways in which we're controlled. We're not controlled today by the Palestinians. Our policies aren't controlled by the Palestinians. Our economy isn't controlled by the Palestinians. You know, we're controlled by Washington. You know, us fighting Palestinians. Or, or trying to delegitimize their struggle or their story or invalidate their pain, because the pain is real, isn't going to free us. What's going to free us is actually acknowledging 
where we might not get be acting as ourselves. I'm not saying this from a place of weakness or some American Jew. I, I, I'm saying this as somebody who wants to advance our revolution forward. And advancing forward isn't always achieved with good strength. That's what I meant before about misusing power. I come as somebody with power. When I, when I meet with Palestinians, I don't bring a gun to the meeting. I don't try to flex my muscles. I don't try to show them how powerful I am because that doesn't need to be said. Right? I step in as somebody who's confident in his own power. If somebody wants to hurt me, put him in the ground. You don't need an ideology for that. You don't need a, a political platform to take out somebody who's trying to hurt you. The question is, where do we want to go? And why did the Kadosh Baruch Hu send the, create the situation where we have Palestinians living with us and we're obviously supposed to learn something from this experience? We're obviously supposed to become more ourselves from this experience. The question is, how is that going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen by denying their story and being defensive and saying, no, we're okay, we've done everything right. How could we even claim that? If we believe, if we know about the Altalena and we know about the Saison, it's really hard to believe that the same Zionist leaders responsible for the Altalena and the Saison weren't also responsible for the Nakba. Is that really hard to imagine? Like, take responsibility. No, that was that was the real difference, by the way, between David and Shaul, taking responsibility, owning up. It doesn't mean retreating. It doesn't mean being weak. It doesn't mean making yourself vulnerable. It, it, in my opinion, it, it's an expression of strength. You take responsibility. You own up where you're wrong. You acknowledge it, and you try to make things right in a way that advances your struggle forward. And that's what I think we need to do. And that's. Well, I think it's so important that we listen to Palestinians and we hear their stories and we hear their experiences. And yeah, it's true. I want Jews to be able to live in 100% of Hebron, not just the, the uh, tiny sliver we're allowed to live in now. But I don't want that to be threatening to Palestinians. And the relationship you have with great families like Jabri, I want you to have those relationships with all the Palestinians. I want them all to experience the positive. That's the future we should... As, the strength, not as people who are weak. By the way, the main difference you spoke before about the way Jews were treated in the Islamic world, which I don't think is as bad as we're treated by Europe, but you know what? It's not a competition. I don't want anyone treating us badly, but the real difference between the relationship we've had with the Islamic world until now and the relationship we can have with the Islamic world today comes down to one factor. The fact when that happened, they treated us that way, dimmies or whatever, they were able to do it because they were able to do it. They were able to do it because we had no power. And today we have power, and they can't do it. The relationship we have with them today will be a different relationship. It's a different relationship because they can't. And if they try to treat us that way today, they'll get hurt. That's the reality. And you don't have to say that to them. They know that. And we see it. Maybe, look, I'm, I have my inner conflicts over the Abraham Accords and over a lot of what Trump has done here. I'm not interested in uh, Lockheed Martin getting rich off, uh, you know, off uh, the Emirates getting these planes and Bahrain getting that. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in real peace, common values, common vision for the region, protecting the region from outside interests. That, that includes definitely 
uh, American weapons companies or oil companies. Um, but I, I do want real peace. I want real unity in the Semitic region. And of course, I want them to recognize us as an organic part of the region. But in order for them to be able to recognize us as an organic part of the region, we have to act like it. And when I talk about occupation, I'm not just, you know, taking their word and it, it's there's a real thing going on. There's a reality in which millions of human beings are living under a military bureaucracy, our military bureaucracy that controls almost every aspect of their lives. And we're not going to be recognized as belonging here until we stop behaving like we don't. That is the way, you know, Western powers behave in the countries they occupy. Let's behave like natives. Maybe then they'll see us as natives. And if we have to fight, we'll fight. And, but it requires us to go from defense to offense. Think about what kind of society we want to be, what that really looks like. And I and obviously, I think, in terms of moving forward, practically speaking, in terms of moving towards a one-state solution where we can live together, happy in the same country, both experiencing victory according to our own narratives. That's important. I think we need to unpack the grievances and aspirations of both sides in order to create a one-state reality here where we're both experiencing victory in the subjective narrative we're living in, right? That means, from my perspective, making the uh, Jewishness of the country much, much, much deeper than it is right now, but at the same time softer. So that everyone with a Jewish education would see the Jewish identity of the state everywhere. And non-Jews, or even Jews who don't have much of a Jewish education, will barely notice. They'll just see a great society where they feel good, and they're prosperous, and they feel equal. And but that requires us to really get away from this idea of a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations and really talk about what structures, what institutions, what policies on a deep level, the organs of the state, not the skin, but the actual internal organs of the state. How do you make those Jews? That's the restructuring I'm talking about. And I think that kind of Jewish state can make space for a non-Jewish population with full equality that doesn't feel like the Jewish state is something that threatens them. Because they have to probably think 15, 20 minutes before they even come to the conclusion, yeah, maybe there's something a little bit Jewish about it. You know, just like I would say the United States, you know, I when I grew up in the United States, I didn't notice how Christian it was every day. It wasn't in my face. But if you really start to think about, like, how the United States is structured, how it functions, what are its values, what are then you say, okay, it's kind of Christian. It's, it's Christianity permeates the United States. Um, but it's not something I necessarily felt othered by on a daily basis living there. And I don't want Palestinians to feel othered by the Jewishness of our state. I want them to feel included. And I want them to feel like their pain is recognized. Because we're responsible. And you know what? I don't even blame us. Because it was right after Auschwitz. You know, the, pers the first people to mess with us as we come out of concentration camps are going to get hurt. That makes sense. But today, I don't think we should be afraid to acknowledge it. Not only acknowledge it, but to make it right. And I think that the Jewish liberation movement that should come after Zionism is one that protects all of Zionism's positive achievements while acknowledging and cleaning up its mess. And I think that will bring us towards a one-state reality where we have all the land of Israel, including Gaza, by the way. I, I, I think it's very important to mention that we do need to talk about the issue of Gaza because there is a humanitarian crisis there today. And there's also a crisis in my heart that we're not able to live there. And so I think we need to return to Gaza. By the way, just um, a memory I have, probably, 
I guess 16, 17 years ago, Ravisha and I were underground in Gush Katif, in Gaza, having the very same argument we're having right now. You know, I remember we were watching the movie Masada, and for anybody who has seen Masada with Peter O'Toole and Peter Strauss, go check that out. It's one of the greatest Jewish movies ever made, in my opinion. And I remember us having this argument over U.S. imperialism and Israel's role and all that, you know, 16, 17 years ago in Gaza. So Bezrat Hashem will be able to return to Gaza, will be able to live in Gaza again, and the Palestinians who live there will have a much better life together with us than they do now, and we'll be able to continue this argument, because I don't think it's over. Thank you, Yehuda. Um, I think one thing we can all agree on is that we don't have enough time to really get to the bottom of this. Um, if I can have just two Yish minutes, I'm, I'm yeah, I'll keep it, no, no, Yish keep it tight. Yeah, yeah, Yisha, you, you are going to have, we're, we're going to do final thoughts. Uh, in your final thoughts, feel free to include what you, what you want to say. Um, and then Yehuda, you will have final thoughts. We're just going to need to accept that we're not going to, you know, we're, we're going to have to end it eventually. Um, just real quick about the after party while people are still here. Jesse, first of all, thank you, Jesse, our awesome intern for helping us. Toss the Discord link in the chat so people can join. Once you go to Discord, you'll see Lounge on the left-hand side. Click Lounge. You'll be connected via voice. You obviously don't need to speak if you don't want to, but you could listen. Um, and we're going to continue the conversation. Um, one last thing. Freedom of expression is important. If you like this video, give it a thumbs up. And if you didn't like it, give it a thumbs down. Express yourself. And really what this does is just tells the YouTube algorithm to push it far and wide so people could see this. Very insightful and important conversation. Um, and with that, final thoughts, friends. Yishai, all you. I really, I really, uh, it, I really enjoyed listening to Rav Yehuda. So I want to thank you, Adar, for for, for this forum. Um, I think that his last comments uh, had a lot of depth um, and, and a lot to think about. And 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 I feel very strongly that parts of what he said, I'm like yes, and part of what he said, I was like no. So just just a few little points on it. First thing, just the last thing about Gaza. Um, when I was a child, we spent a lot of time in the Sinai. The Sinai was never really Egyptian. It's a complete British uh, uh, invention. Remember the Bible? You leave Egypt, you go to Sinai because it's a different place. The Sinai was given to our hands uh, in war by God in 1956 and in 1967. And I absolutely believe that that line in the desert, which separates the Negev from the Sinai, is one of the silliest geographic lines in the world. It's just totally arbitrary and fake. And the truth so, is, is that... I just want to be on record as agreeing with Rabbi Shayan. Right. Okay. I, 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 I was sure. Like, for me, I think about the Sinai all the time. Long story, but I just recently found out that we also controlled these little tiny islands that were at the mouth of the Straits of Tehran. They're called Tehran Island and another little island. And that we gave up these little islands also in the peace deal that was an American forced peace deal uh, with, with Egypt. And I was like, I can't believe they returned these little islands. We could have used them as naval bases, at least to patrol to the states, Straits of Tehran, which is what the whole war was started about in the first place when, when Nasser closed the Straits of Tehran. So like, okay, you want the Sinai back? I'm against that. But at least hold on to these little islands at the tip so we could have a naval base there. Like I am 100%, I believe that Sinai should come back to our uh, control, our sovereignty. Uh, and I would say that the best way to do it is the Abrahamic way, which is to purchase it. I would right now offer billions of, of shekels or whatever uh, to Egypt and say, listen, it's going to be better for your security if we handle this place. Here's a lot of money so you could strengthen your economy. We'll send over advisors, whatever you need, but the Sinai should come back to our hands. And that will, by the way, choke out 
Hamas, who, who are the real instigators of that humanitarian crisis in Gaza, etc., etc. The Sinai is our land. And when we say from the, from the river to the sea, what does that really mean? A lot of times we understand that as either being, you know, the Nile Delta or, or, we, or El Arish, whatever it is. But the bottom line, the Sinai, and you can see it on the map, it's just naturally part of Israel. So that's number one. Number two, with regarding to the British, uh, the British aiding Israel in their colonial enterprise, well, I mean, that's a little bit funny because some of the fakest countries in the world Jordan, the kingdom of Jordan, uh, which is just one of the fakest countries around. Why is it fake? Because a fake king brought from a different place, taking over land that was not his, uh, a Arabian Bedouin king taking over land that was mostly populated by Arab Palestinians, had nothing to do with anything, just a favor uh, to, to British friends. Jordan, and then also Iraq, the whole kingdom of Iraq, the, the Hashemite you know, uh, kingdoms, both these places. They're the fakest creations in this region, and, and they, they partially on Jewish land, you know, the British did a lot to help Arab imperialism as well. Um, and so the British did, did a lot to, to, to mess all of us around. It's not like we, the Jews, were like aided by the British to, um, to, uh, to, to, to subjugate the Arabs. I mean, remember Lawrence of Arabia, like the, the, the British together with the Arabs throughout the, the Turks, which was, by the way, the great thing for this region to throw the Turks back. So the, there was some great stuff that happened through the British. Both Arabs and Jews enjoyed that. And in the end, we, we, we had to, you know, kick them out and thank God that we did. But I just wouldn't want it to be painted through this conversation that as though, like, we were the beneficiaries of, 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 of British imperialism and everybody else was the victim. That's not the way it was at all. And you yourself taught me how Jordan was British-led, British-trained, British-armed and attacked Israel. To, to try to destroy it. And, and, Britain, and Jordan to this very day is a fake country, and that country is the one that put most of the Palestinians into the so-called West Bank, uh, and then took away willy-nilly their citizenship in the, in the mid-80s, the late 80s, and I say always, let's give them their citizenship back to the original Palestinian state, the original two-state solution, which was Jordan, again, Jewish land uh, that was given to Palestinian Arabs in the original two-state solution. Um, um, with regarding to, to what Yehuda said, which I found strangely, Rabbi Yehuda said, which I found strangely beautiful, which is this idea that they'll, that Palestinians will live in this land without feeling that they're othered. I like that very much, and that really does bespeak of some of the biblical statements about how a ger toshav um, uh, feels in this land, a, a resident alien feels in this land. That's a biblical concept, resident alien. It's not from America or from any place else. It's a biblical concept. Uh, but at the same time, the Ger Toshav, we have laws about how Ger Toshav is supposed to feel and how it's supposed to live in this land, and in many ways treated with love, with rights, with equalities, but not in total equality, because the word equality is not a regional word. No tribe moves into another tribe's region and is like, I demand equality. That's not, that's a Western word. That's a Western word. That is not a regional word. No Arabs talks to, to, to no tribe had say, give me equality in your tribal land. It just does not happen that way. I say, give, give Palestinians who are allied with us, like the Druze, like the Bedouins, give them their, of course, their, their freedoms and rights. Let them vote locally. Let them do, you know, let them, let them have self-rule in their big cities. Uh, of course, not as a separate state. These are, this is our land. Let them feel good in the land and, and, and have prosperity. But at the same time, to deny that the jihad feels that they have lost against us and to not want them to feel that feeling of loss, I can quote to you many verses where, where when Psalms, when it says, let them feel the loss. 
Let them feel that they were bettered. Let them feel that they were they were not given the opportunity to destroy us, to throw us into the sea. I don't have a problem with that. I even think that having a problem with that is a Western type feeling. Do you think that Yonatan the Maccabee had a problem with with the uh, with the uh, 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 Nebataeans feeling that they were bested by by the Jews? That's just the way it is around here. Tough noogies. That's just the way it is. People, I, I agree with you. You don't have to come in with a gun all the time and wave it around and be a cowboy. But let's be real. One of the reasons that the, that the Saudis and the Emiratis are coming towards Israel today is because they realized we can't beat them. We couldn't beat them. Or another way, we lost to them. And the, and the jihad against the Jews has been fruitless. And damn it, not only has it been fruitless because Allah is with the Jews, but also has turned into a curse for us. And we've been, re we've been regressing in these last hundred years instead of developing. So new kings like Mohammed bin Salman, you know, MBS, he is interested in rapprochement because he realizes that the damn thing is, is not worth it. It's not worth it to fight with the Jews endlessly because Allah is with them. And, 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 and lastly, I'll finish off with this. Speaking of, of colonialism, the ultimate colonialism, the ultimate thing that we should really say al that we sinned, was that we spoke with a lack of clarity. Now, one of the people that really was the architect of this lack of clarity was Moshe Dayan. Now, Moshe Dayan was a great uh, a Zionist uh, army fighter, but when he took over, you know, Judea and Samaria, the West, the West Bank in the Six Day War, he had this idea. The idea was, let them have the Temple Mount, let them have uh, the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs, because what they want is their religion. Give them their religion, but we take the land. We control the land, and they control the religion, and they'll be satisfied with that. Now, that is, I have to agree with Rabbi Yehuda, that is colonialism, because it's like, well, they have their religion, and it's centered here. Good, good, let them do it, but we really want the land. We want the civil control. No, that is a deep misunderstanding about how the psyche of the region works, and it's a deep misunderstanding of what our Bible tells us. It tells us you've got you've to push back. You've got to destroy the high places of the people who have an alternative narrative to yours. Usually there are idolaters. In this case, it's a little bit different. But still, there is an idolatry of a death cult that tries to destroy the Jewish people, and we had no right, historically, to let them continue to have a center of anti-Semitism and anti-Israelism in the holiest place on earth. To this very day, our own country enforces the rules of the jihad by not letting us pray and, and feel normal on our own Temple Mount. That was that that occupation, that relationship with these places as though they'll do religion and we'll do the land. I agree with, if, if Rav Yehuda means this, then I certainly agree with him that that was a great mistake. And that led to, uh, I think, one of the greatest sins of Zionism and, and one that we perpetuate today, which is a lack of clarity. Speak in clarity. Sometimes that clarity can even be harsh, but people appreciate truth and they hear it when you say it. Give them, give them borders. Give them, give them, give them uh, um, you know, uh, principles by which to live their life in our land. With, and that will make them feel like they are equal, that they have opportunities, just like reviewer said, which I really like a lot. Let them feel like it's not constantly othered, but they will know that this is the Jewish state, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just like you know in Saudi Arabia that it's Saudi Arabia, and just like you know in Iran that it's got the deep Persian culture, you'll know that this is the, Jew, the home of the Jewish culture. Um, in any case, I want to thank you, gentlemen, again so much, and it's been an honor uh, thinking about the future of Israel and the future of this region together, and of course with the help of God. Okay. Uh, when it comes to this lack of clarity, I definitely agree with you, and I, before I even get to that, I just want to say very quickly that uh, you and I probably agree uh, on the need to be 
strong, aggressive, forceful, uh, in some cases merciless with the enemy. But I think we have a very big difference of opinion in terms of who we define as an enemy. And I think we have to be very careful now that we have power. This is one of the uh, complications that comes with having power, which is something we're not used to. You know, for 2,000 years, there were two kinds of humans. There were the Jews and there was the enemy. And in most cases, they were persecuting us, right? And the times that we were able to fight back and make them bleed were very rare. And now we have a situation where we have power again, but we still have our sense of vulnerability. I think we need to be sensitive to this, that we still have the trauma and the sense of vulnerability and the insecurities of the powerlessness that we previously, the, the situation we were previously in. Uh, so often we tend, I see this so much, um, and maybe I used to be guilty of this as well, as seeing people who want to fight us because they're legit being victimized by us on a daily basis as the enemy. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair to define someone who wants to fight you because you're hurting them and you're not, and, and you're not letting up. And you're just constantly, constantly, constantly hurting him. Uh, and his life is terrible because of you. He wants to fight. Of course he wants to fight. And I, I agree. The enemy, Rashi teaches us, the enemies of Israel are the enemies of the Kadosh Baruch Hu, Right? But it becomes a little bit tricky when they're your enemy because of something you're doing wrong. So I think we, have to, we, we need to really ask ourselves these questions. Maybe I'm wrong, but this is something I think we need to think about. This is something we need to, to analyze. It's something we need to... Uh, discuss, just like we need to discuss so many issues that weren't relevant to us when we had no power, now that we're back in our land, now that we're independent again, the discussions we have, the way we see things needs to evolve. And we need to make, and by the way, if we're able to create a situation where we're all living here together and they are included uh, and the Palestinians are equal in our society and some still want to fight us, then there'll be much less confusion. But right now, it's, it's kind of difficult. I also want to address this historical point of Zionists collaborating with the British regime. Um, I by no means meant to say that the British established the state for us. They did not. In fact, the British did everything they could to prevent us from having independence here. They wanted to rule this country forever because of the oil to the east, which they were piping to Haifa, and because of the Suez Canal to the west, and maybe even the historic prestige of ruling Jerusalem. Uh, but there were many Zionist leaders who refused to uh, see this, just like I think many Zionist leaders or many Israeli leaders, uh, especially on the right, uh, have trouble seeing the dangers of our relationship with the United States and the way U.S. imperialism functions in the region. I think many Zionist leaders, including Jabotinsky, by the way, not only the labor Zionists and the, uh, and the Chaim Weizmanns, but even the Jabotinskys, uh, had trouble recognizing the British as an enemy had trouble recognizing that the British were doing everything they could to prevent our liberation. Uh, they collaborated with the British against our freedom fighters. And it wasn't the Zionist, the truth is, it depends how we use our terminology, but it wasn't the official Zionist leadership that, that fought the British and made them leave. It was the underground, it was the Lehi, it was the Israel, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, who recognized the British as the enemy and who recognized the other peoples of the Middle East of the Semitic region as our natural allies and tried to create a united front. And in every society where you had leaderships uh, collaborating with the British, you had revolutionary progressive elements in those societies trying to fight against British imperialism. And it's a shame that those progressive elements weren't able to all unite against British imperialism, but that's what happened. 
Um, so it, that just needs to be clear. Now, in terms of lack of clarity, I think you're 100% right. I think that for the most part, Palestinians are victims of a Jewish identity crisis, and every Israeli leader they've been meeting until now has been lying to them, including Moshe Dayan, like you said. Uh, and that's why I think it's so important for Jews like you, Yishai, to be meeting Palestinians, but really listening to them, not, uh, not dismissing their grievances, not saying that their story is fake or it's just propaganda to try and disenfranchise us, but actually listening to them, listening to their pain, being able to acknowledge where we're responsible, what we've contributed to the situation, what we've contributed to their suffering, and because we have power and this is our land and we don't have a right to this land. We have a responsibility to this land and to everybody in it and to take responsibility. I think that's really the way forward and it's not going to come from the Tel Avivim. It's going to come from Jews like you and Jews like me and, and that's the only thing I really... Uh, ask of you, Yishai, that w next time you engage Palestinians, and I know you do, do so with a real open mind. Really listen to them and ask yourself the question, is this story true? Are they really suffering? Do we bear some responsibility? And is it in our power to fix it? Thank you both. Just just one tiny point for Yehuda. I guess a, I guess a point of disagreement between us is that I still see us very much under fire. I see us under fire in Hebron. I see us under fire in all of our borders. I, I see that any minute now we could have a launch of 200,000 rockets from Hezbollah, an Iranian nuclear bomb, uh, uh, a, a ISIS in Sinai, a, a naval attack, a, a, a sea attack from Gaza uh, to, to, to Tel Aviv. Like in, in Hebron, I see a constant land takeover. I see a narrative uh, that is... You're talking me being sensitive to them. Like I see... A, a, a horrific insensitivity day in day out. Insensitivity is just a silly word in this case. It's like it's like an effort to, to 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 as we say in Hebrew, latira domeno, to make our blood cheap, to to make it like something that you can and should take. And so, like, I, I'm not there yet. Like, I don't believe, and I think this is a Palestinian narrative, which is like you're the power now, you're the big boys. You know, it's still their region. We're still under attack. Yes, the Lord Hashem has given us strength to push back. But I don't think we're anywhere near yet this place where it's like we're the big power broker and they're the, the poor victims. Like that, 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 that uh, uh, setup there is just something I will not agree to yet. I just don't think it's true. And I think that we have a daily theft that I see out my window of our land and I cry for the land of Israel and we have a daily effort on the international level. Look at what's happening on the ICC. Look what's what's happening uh, uh, with um, uh, just 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 on Wikipedia the war that we have to try to erase our good name that literally my friends and I are fighting just to keep our narrative true. So I wouldn't like make it out to be in, into this, I think, a very false equation that, that you and I have a disagreement on. I don't believe in that equation. They're the victims and we're the big strong guys. I'm sorry. It's not like that. They're, this is their region. We're the minority. We have a protectorate. They keep on inc making incursions into our land and into our narrative. And I still think that there's a, there's a hell of a war still being fought. Now, if you say to me, listen to people more and, and try to analyze it with an open mind, I accept that. But I wouldn't make it so open as to not realize what the status of the conflict is. I think you're right in terms of you and I. I think you're right in terms of me being more confident in our power, me feeling stronger. Um, that's probably true. But I also think that the course of action that I advocate for, where I think we should go in terms of our relationship with the Palestinians, the region, the world, will make us stronger. Meaning, because I think ultimately a lot of the 
uh, aggression directed against us is because we're perceived as a settler colony, because we behave like a settler colony. I'm not saying bend over. I'm not saying make yourself vulnerable. I'm saying stop behaving like a settler colony. And if we're able to do that with... They're angry at us because we're a colony? I, I thought that they were angry at us in Auschwitz and they're angry at us when we're weak and they're, ag they're angry at us for every kind of way uh, we can figure out. I don't know who they is. We're going to need a... We're, we're, we're ending on a great note. Um, we do have some common ground. Obviously, we're going to need a, a few more hours to really dish this out, but let's, uh, let's leave it at that. I thought this was a great conversation. It seems like the viewers did as well. And um, the conversation actually is not over, so we're, we're going to have an after party now in Discord. Until next time, friends, and I will see uh, see you all in the after party in the lounge. All right, folks, you are listening to the Ishai Fleischer Show. Thank you so much for being with us on this extra long Purim special. Lots of love to you from from the land that keeps Purim for three days this year. And we miss you, and we love you, and we're celebrating with all the world, with the capital of the world, the spiritual capital of the world, that is Yerushalayim, and of course, it's sister city, Hebron, and all the other holy cities here in the land of Israel, uh, Arei Elokeinu, the, the cities of our God, uh, and you are part of it wherever you are, really, you are part of the story, and you matter so much to it, and just don't even for one second forget that there are so many haters out there and you are a lover. There are so many haters of Israel and you've decided to be a lover and that means that you are part of something amazing and something great. So do me a favor, write me an email, yishayishayfleischer.com. Praise God for the greatness that he's done for us for in our time. Let's be part of something great. Let us not give up even one second of the opportunity to be plugged in to this moment, this moment that 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 is such a gift to be alive in this moment. And we see all the generations of the past looking towards us and saying, saying, do it, guys. Do it, gals. Make it awesome. Make it happen. Bring Mashiach, bring down the temple, bring the Jewish people home, bring a light to the world. So that's it. I want to thank again the folks that make this show happen. Tabitha, Ben Bresky, Yocheved, Moshe Herman, and Lou, all the producers and volunteers of the show. Really appreciate you guys so much. And I appreciate you, the listener, the friend, wherever you are out there. And thank you, Hashem, God Almighty, for this great time and this great opportunity. Happy Purim. And when I say happy, I mean not only happy, but the, not only the enjoying the holiday, but let the happiness, the godly happiness, flow through you and into the world. God bless you. Blessings from the land of blessings. And shalom. Enhance your faith, deepen your understanding, align your destiny with the Land of Israel. Every Sunday, the Land of Israel Fellowship features a live interactive Zoom session hosted by Jeremy Gimpel. That's the Land of Israel Fellowship, bringing the Torah from Judea to the world. For more information, visit thelandofisrael.com fellowship.